0: Start music. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, broadcasting as usual from out here in Scent City, Las Vegas. And as usual, I'm trying to bring a well-diverse group of guests to the show, and this guest is no different, very good, diverse background in training and working with dogs. And without any further ado, Steve White, welcome to the show. Steve, thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Cameron. Appreciate it.
0: So, you know, we're kind of doing a redo here for a second, but uh, I want to let the listeners who do don't know who you are, get to know you and your background and things like that. So tell us a bit about you.
1: Well, uh, I'm a recently retired law enforcement officer. I was, uh, um, I had spent 46, I was actually in my 47th year in law enforcement. Most of that time was in canine, starting in 1975 as a military police working dog handler, then in the 80s handling uh, a patrol dog in, as a county deputy sheriff um in the late 80s i transferred to the seattle police department and then in the 90s i was in canine as a narcotics detection dog handler and a trainer for patrol dogs and uh, narcotics detection dogs and then uh, i spent two more stints back in the unit as a sergeant uh, the last of which was where i retired from uh, spending uh, almost eight years as the training supervisor for the unit um, and uh, when i wasn't in canine I was training, I, you know, from obedience classes out in rural Kitsap County to animal behavior consultation in the Seattle area, Uh, that's where I met my wife, Mm -hmm. she's a, uh, she was animal behavior consultant, and we wound up cross-referring clients, Uh, we both did all species work, Um, even when I was a kid, I lived in New York City for, from the time I was 10 until I graduated high school, and when other kids were um, babysitting, I was walking dogs for a living. So. You've been, been at it for, for all my life.
0: Yeah. I, I relate to the passion. I've been doing it a long time myself, but yeah, I'm not where you're at yet. <laughs> but well,
1: that's that, okay, because where I'm at is Medicare.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I know I won't be too far behind, that's for sure. The... Um, you know, and that's what's really unique for you in law enforcement. You know, you got into what is, I would say it's happening more often now. i am seeing more and more of the uh, LEO community getting themselves into uh, some form of either, you know, pet training, nose work, things of that nature. But you've been doing it for a while. That I guess, I'm sure, had to have made an impact on what you were doing as a cop. How did you, how did that transition getting into working with pet dogs and things like that make a difference for you when you were working as a police dog trainer and handler?
1: Well, you know, I started actually, I got into law enforcement to work dogs because I wanted to work dogs. And I saw that in the civilian market, in the, in the showing realm, in the sport realm, um, there are just a lot of aspects that didn't appeal to me at the time. And then, um, I bumped into a Seattle police canine unit and, uh, I thought, wow, this might be it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in college at the time majoring in journalism and actually not really thrilled with the journalism prof that I had because, mm-hmm. um, he was, uh, you know, pushing an agenda with which I didn't agree. So I just kind of, I said, okay, maybe I'll go give this a try and the A bunch of Seattle police officers took me under their wing Mm -hmm. and um, said, yeah, yep, you you probably could do this job, but you need um, to grow up some. I was 19 (laughs) years old Mm -hmm. and they suggested four polite years of penal servitude um, (laughs) in the United States military. Mm -hmm. And I went to the army, um, got a guarantee for MP school when I enlisted and then got lucky, got selected for dog school right away. So I went straight from MP school to dog school, straight to a duty station. And I was nothing but a patrol dog handler uh, in a garrison situation. Mm. So I wasn't working out in the field. I wasn't deployed uh, as the military side. I, I was largely a police side. Mm. And I found that I loved both both halves of that. Uh, I loved working with the dogs and I loved the police work side. They were both um, very appealing to me. Um, and I think it's, it's fair to say I started actually thinking about working with dogs earlier because, uh, I got a dog and I started doing obedience classes and the instructor, uh, talked me into going out and, uh, playing lost person for the German shepherd search dogs of Washington state. And he was the training director for them at the time and brought me in. And I thought that was really cool too. I really liked it. Um, but he was, um, a hard, hardcore devotee of William Keeler's approach to dog training. Gotcha, and that's where I so that's where I came in, mm-hmm. and that um, that was a largely negative reinforcement based system, mm-hmm. um, with a little bit of positive reinforcement at the tail end overlaid. Yeah. Um, then I went into the army, and they didn't want any of that. So Keeler <laughs> was like, "Don't talk to him. Let the dog just learn from the consequences." Yeah. And the army was, "You're constantly talking to your dog." I mean, they literally before you get your dog, they train you to praise the dog by giving you a rock or an ammo can to praise, mm-hmm. and you and you're staring at this rock or you're staring at an ammo can, and you're saying, "Had a good boy, had a good dog, had a good baby," and they wanted you to say all of that every time. Really, make a fool of yourself with the dog, um, and really babble on. Um, later on, I found after the, my military time, um, working in the civilian realm, I found out there are real problems when you start babbling on, especially Mm -hmm. if you're doing construction work, so.
0: And it's funny, uh, obviously we had really similar, uh, you know, backgrounds in that sense. I started off, uh, the guy who was my neighbor growing up was one who started Police Canine in Florida and he had learned from Pat Cahill. And, uh, you know, so that rubbed off on me quite a bit. I did the same thing. I, I was hanging around the cops, being the decoy, laying tracks, doing this, doing that. And I was ready to go get a badge. And they said the same thing. You're best going into the military first. And so for me, it was the air force. And I did my, you know, little over four years and, you know, being lucky enough to be stationed in Europe. So that had an, an impact on me as well. And those that have listened to the podcast before have heard me talk about that. But, uh, and like you said, the Ammo Can—that was my first dog, and it was all about praising the Ammo Can. I think to this day they still do that. That's such a steeped traditional um, aspect they use in their in their uh, training system that that still exists for all of these years, from the 70s to now. It's still there. Um, but there's a reason. Yes, of course. I, I, and you know, uh, now that Doc Hilliard's been out there a long time, you know he's push their needle forward some, but it's still a huge machine to change. That's for sure. It's well,
1: you know, the, through the years, I mean, I was in search of the perfect method, you know, because I realized Keeler wasn't it. I realized what the Army taught me wasn't it. I gravitated after the after I got out of the Army. I looked at Patricia Gale Burnham's book, Play Training Your Dog, and I kind of like pieces of that because I saw something that um, play as a reinforcer gave dogs that I wasn't able to get with just verbal praise and I wasn't able to get with just food. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and so I've tried a lot of different stuff. And the one thing, uh, I come to realize is that there is no one method that's going to work well with all dogs. You're going to have to dial it in for the individual animal, but the principles will apply across the board. And this most succinct version of the principles that I've ever seen are in Karen Pryor's book, Don't Shoot the Dog. Mm -hmm. And Karen Pryor, um, you know, I can largely credit her for really helping me make the final leap. I had been moving towards being a positive reinforcement based trainer for years before that, for decades, for like a decade before that. Mm -hmm. I like to say that. Sure. I have 47 years in the career, but I don't have 47 years of experience. Sure. Because very much the first 20 years was like one year repeated 20 times over. (laughs) So true. You know, and there's a difference between 20 years experience and one year of experience Mm -hmm. 20 times over. You really Mm got to realize. So I was starting behind the eight ball. Uh, But um, I think the one thing that really shifted things for me was um, seeing how animals, much more powerful, much more dangerous than a dog could be trained without using force. Mm-hmm. You had to use reasonable precautions. There was protected contact or things like that. But it started to shift for me. And I said, OK, what can I do to bring into this? And if you like I said, if you read Don't Shoot the Dog and you understand the 22 principles that are outlined in that book, mm-hmm. that's the eight, uh, you know, the, the eight ways to get rid of unwanted behavior, the ten laws of shaping and the four conditions of stimulus control. You can train anything, any animal to do anything it's mentally and capable,
2: mm-hmm.
1: mentally and physically capable of doing. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you should. I think there's something about finding the right job, the right dog yeah. for the job mm-hmm. or the right job for a dog mm-hmm. and uh, making sure that you fit the wrong people. The biggest, the only reason I got to be a trainer is I made more mistakes than everybody else. It, same. You know, and that's, um, I think that's what you have to learn. You have to learn to, um, harness failure and realize that every, every training exercise, every deployment yields information mm-hmm. and you're wasting your time. If you don't harness it, Yeah, it's about getting the information and then making adjustments based on information, not your feelings about the deployment, not your hopes, aspires and dreams, not your crushed ego, but actually data. Yeah. actual information that's useful. And then you can make adjustments.
0: It's so true. I, it it took me a while to embrace that. And then I love sharing that now frequently the message I give as a instructor to many others is embrace the failure, you know, and I really got to see that on display with the uh, SEAL team community. When I was out there, that was one of the biggest things that they go through is a up failure on purpose to learn from and it's, it is to put the obviously operators through a lot of stress and then to be capable of understanding the failure and take lessons learned and things like that. But it's very applicable to the dog world. And I try to share the same thing you just talked about there, which is the importance of that. And I share that now even more so in the sport community, um, where, you know, I think sometimes failure is something they they don't want to go through because they love their dog so much. And the dog is a, has been their best friend and their pet and things like that. And, um, Failure is, you know, oh, I let my dog down, or I, I don't want my dog to walk away not get, getting something like this. How do you address that kind of thing, um, as you've seen it on the sport community side of things?
1: Well, I'll tell you, um, it, I bring, it brings to mind somebody right now who is just beginning to start teaching the sport community, and I think she's she could have done it five years earlier, mm-hmm. and the community would have benefited, but that's Kelly Connell. Okay. Okay. Um, down in uh, in the San Diego area, um, she's been tearing things up. She but she's a she's a really good teacher and she's mm-hmm. a really good trainer, um, and she's smart enough to know to rely on really good people to help her out. She knows how to apportion work and not try and hold everything to herself in a way that works really well. She gets really good helpers. Um, she gets all kinds of support with her structure. Uh, her husband, Chris Connell, okay. former SEAL, yep, and he's a heck of a trainer too. Um, but I think Kelly's Kelly is emblematic of what I think is going to happen with the the community, uh, the sport community over time, and that is, um, they're going to not be driven by an ideology. They're going to be driven by information, okay. and the information they and they get you get better when you learn to get the information. In a timely fashion and then make your adjustments quickly the best trainers i you know it's like i'm going to skip i'm, I'm going to change subjects we're sure gonna go, go right ahead uh, out of dog training we're going to go to art yep um my oldest stepdaughter was always artistic crazy crazy creative just mm. really creative all the way up until like eighth grade she would always do art things and it was there but everything you looked at said wow there's something here but it falls short of what she was capable of Mm
2: -hmm.
1: she you know because we'd always given her paints and materials to work with and she was not afraid to do anything she just tried stuff then she went to a high school where the very first year she got lucky and got put in an ap class AP art class and the instructor said you're going to learn how to use the tools
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you're going to learn skills and techniques Because only when you really know how know the rules of the game can you break them, and that's when real art happens. And the same thing is with dog training. A lot of people are busy trying to get creative before they master the skills, and next thing you know, this thing is a hot mess running off the rails. Yeah. And uh, you know, Haley in that class, she went from uh, coming in here as a as a creative, very creative person, who then went on to winning awards because. Her creativity was uh, made manifest with really nice technique, Yeah, you know, a high level of skill. Um, And that made all the difference. And I think um, skill is something you don't you're not. Some people are born with uh, some Mm -hmm. natural ability with dogs, but even that fails. Sure. As soon as you get a dog that kind of goes in a different direction than your inclination, all of a sudden that fails. And what what brings you back, what saves you? is building your own skill set getting mm-hmm. clean mechanics truly understanding the nature of reinforcement and if timing is the hallmark of a good trainer then criterion shift is the hallmark of a truly effective of a great trainer yeah knowing what to ask for next knowing what you can get away with asking for next mm-hmm. that you can where you can push it um you know you talked about being a trainer of, of others and a trainer and i think um every good trainer uh like i was working in a law enforcement organization and operational things when i failed as a trainer it's when i didn't do the the first thing that is my first piece of work as a trainer and that is to find the edges of performance
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to
1: find where things start will look really good and then start to get wobbly yep and then we gently push those edges of performance outward to give us a broader skill set or a deeper degree of fluency or stimulus control in a specific behavior. And then we just keep, we take, you know, imagine that the repertoire is a circle around that person. We just keep pushing the edges out yep. until at about the time the dog is on its downhill slide. It's really dialed in. Yeah, It's, I mean, it's one of those things you see, I mean, they're good. They can perform all the way through it, but because it's a lifelong process um, you see changes in the animal and changes in the person That are really really cool to watch and it's not comfortable for the people in the beginning because early on my way of introducing uh, to find the edge of performance is to watch them do what they work look for a pattern and then do something ask them to do something that breaks the pattern like if you were a cop you learn to do a uh, a field sobriety test right Mm -hmm. make somebody walk a line yeah close their eyes tip their head back and touch their nose right Mm Those are all divided attention tests. The whole principle behind them is we have our patterns and things happen for us naturally. But as soon as you are asked to attend to something else, that takes cognitive load. Mm -hmm. And if your brain is impaired by alcohol, you have less ability to do that rapid task switching it takes to make that work. Yep. So... The same thing happens with dog training. You find somebody who's in their groove where they've got the, they've got things that <laughs> looks really really good, and then you just throw a little wrench in it. Oh yeah, say so just do me a favor. When your dog does this, I want you to just turn to the, take two steps to the left. Yeah. Or instead of doing your healing pattern in an L shape, I want it in um, a three legged one. I mm-hmm. want a left, a right then return and there'll be another left and then another right mm-hmm. coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's enough that all of a sudden you can take something out. or I say something nice to something, something strange. And it's like, okay, this is the odd lead healing exercise. I want you instead of uh, holding your lead in your hand to just drape it over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Just take that lead, drape it over your shoulder. And if your dog is truly in heel through that whole thing, that lead will stay there. Mm-hmm. If that dog ventures a little farther out of the box, it'll fall off. And then you see people start as soon as they feel the lead start to slip, they change. <laughs> they slow down, and then the dog says, "I don't know what to do. This you never you're
0: acting this. weird."
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you could then you can help them identify how much the pattern has controlled the behavior as opposed to the actual stimulus that they're supposed to be attending to, which mm-hmm. is the cue. Yeah. And then if they truly understand the behavior of a workout, whether it's healing, whether it's detection, the same thing applies. Yes. Break the break patterns, and you just talked about it. I think I saw you doing a uh, a piece on uh, uh, magnetic canisters, magnetic. Yes. 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 Right? yes. And you pointed out that they're a visual target,
2: uh-huh.
1: and the one thing—if you've ever, anybody out there is a devotee of bob bailey the one thing yes. he'll tell you is if the animal's on a visual target you better get it out of there as quickly as you can because the longer they attend to it the more the dog thinks the problem
0: the, the problem solving yep.
1: process involves the eyes as opposed to the nose
0: yes it's so true and especially you know i share it on the cognitive side of things because the dogs that are stronger in memory and cognition uh, take that to another level versus the, and then you know it, it, you can go there's a lot of wormholes what, go do down cheat yeah exactly no five five says i'm
1: supposed to be supposed to be a real uh you know a professional and say that dogs are opportunists yeah we will always try to find the easiest way to solve the problem
0: yes the that, and, that,
1: and i just say no they're all cheating is, yeah. every one of them they will they will cheat why because to them there's no rules yeah it's, it's just like get it done.
0: Yep. And I have a, I'll get to that. There's some of the questions I have ahead. The but what you're bringing up brings up the question I was I want to ask which is the current state of police canine we will keep it detection only cuz it can go really broad when we add patrol to it. How would you rate our current state of detection as far as police canine. And I mean that in the, pharma, in the form of training and or certification evaluations. Um, as you probably saw, I, I shared a post in regards to the certification process. But I wanted to hear from you. You obviously have done it much longer than I did. But how do you see it? And where do you see or how should we evolve?
1: So largely, the police canine community does things because that's the way they've always been done. Mm-hmm. And that is a process of that is a um, an artifact of something you alluded to earlier, which there's a rate of turnover within mm-hmm. the law enforcement community of people going in and out of dog work. And so you don't get the longitudinal, the, the historical knowledge of how things go. And you don't. And, and I, I know this will shock you and your listeners. <laughs> cops tend to be a little bit of an insular group. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, and it, part of it's because look, we're not we're not real popular with the general public in many ways. Mm-hmm. There are many people that respect us, and they 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 they're they're fine. But you got to think about it. What's the difference between a, a firefighter and a police officer? Mm-hmm. And only one of them can can apply force to you. We are yep. society's arm. Yep. Or. We were when I was one. Yeah, society's arm of uh, the monopoly on force. Mm-hmm. Society has said we are going to do this. We can take money away from you when you drive too fast. We can take your freedom away when you drive drunk. We can take your freedom away, and oh, by the way, if you f- if you run away or fight from us, we will apply physical force to you in the process of taking your freedom away. Um, that's you know, that's not the recipe for having a warm and loving relationship with people. There are a lot of Mm -hmm. people who appreciate the safety and security that is, but they got to divorce themselves from the moment. Even, even then it's, I mean, it's like my oldest daughter, when she was in high school, she was getting courted by the law enforcement explorers and the firefighting explorers. They both wanted her. They were both going after it. Mm -hmm. And then the firefighting explorer coordinator who had been one of our uh, He'd been and started out as an explorer, law enforcement explorer, um, and then was one of our reserve deputies. Then he was a regular deputy. Then he was a state trooper, and then he finally went to the fire service. He said, "Gina, it's really simple. Firefighter, cop. If you're, no, firefighter, cop. You're a cop. You're going to work twenty-two days a month. Firefighter, eight days a month." Yeah, cop. You work your entire shift, chasing calls, and then you're hanging over the shift writing paper. Firefighter, you do your shift and you go home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Cop, um, your entire shift is work. Firefighter, mm, you eat on <laughs> duty, you sleep on duty, you work out on duty, you maybe do a little of your side business on duty. It's all there. Yeah, but these she's but the kicker, he says Gina. The real thing is this: if you show up, if you're a firefighter and you show up at a party. There's still a party. <laughs> Whereas a cop shows up, even when he's off duty, you've probably experienced this back in the days when you are involved in law enforcement, you show up and people's behavior changes. And so it's one of those things that, that is an artifact. This is one of the pieces of fallout that comes from coercion. And because we are society's designated arm of coercion, the only firefighters that have that element of coercion are fire marshals. Mm-hmm. And they can break up a party even yep. better than a cop can. Yeah. But the whole point is that it doesn't happen very often. And it isn't their sole purpose. And so th- you think about this bleeding over into the way we train people and we train dogs that every time we use coercion, there's a piece of fallout. I'm not saying I'm a pure positive trainer 100%. I'm sorry for my friends in the pet professional <laughs> guild. I cannot take that oath. But I can say that. Um, I've found that the more I use coercion, the more I'm tempted to use more. Mm -hmm. There's a seductive quality. Why? Because usually it happens when something annoys us and we use negative reinforcement or positive punishment or even negative punishment to get rid of it. And in so doing, we get reinforced for using one of those techniques. Because the annoying thing stops long enough to give us some relief. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, you are doing it again and the dog ramps it up and you got to do it a little harder. The dog does it more often. You got to do it a little faster. And next thing you know, you, you've got yourself into a coercive quicksand. Yeah. So I try and avoid it. I make sure that if I have to use an aversive, I try to make sure that I put more thought into it than I would even for the training plans I use for my positive reinforcement, which I believe is hard for people to do because positive reinforcement training front loads effort. Mm-hmm. Like if you wanted, I, I don't believe that there's good and bad training methods. Like I get, I'm going to get, I'm going to get some flack for this. <laughs> I don't, all there is, is trade-offs. Yep. Everything in life is trade-off. What do you, what, what are you willing to give up to get what you want? I can train and get a dog associated with odor really fast by using classical pairing where I'm taking mm-hmm. the, the toy that it has and I'm having it do that stuff. But the trade-off I get with that is it's always associated with that object. And also it's associated with physically manipulating that object, Mm -hmm. carrying it, biting it, digging it, scratching it, all that good stuff. Probably not a good thing for a bomb dog. Nope. And yet there are plenty of bomb dog trainers putting out dogs that start with that kind of association and then they suppress it later on. They teach the dog, Mm -hmm. no, you can't do that. You sit, except we know that resurgence is a phenomenon. Yes. And we'll get to that later. And the problem we've got is in the law enforcement community, much of what we do is driven by um, the need for getting things done quickly. Yes. And so methods that get a result
2: mm-hmm.
1: will have a preference over ones that will get a more desirable result. And you wind up paying a price for that later on and, and yeah. that's the trade-off and you you spend more time over the rest of the dog's career um tweaking and adjusting things because the foundation um you you built a house that was designed for one foundation on a different foundation yeah and it's not that the foundation's faulty it's that it's not designed for the structure that you need and you 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 spend your career on it and unfortunately most law enforcement handlers i mean think about it here's here's a peripheral piece of evidence that the law enforcement canine culture um, is driven in a different way if I asked you what most cops would say why do you need to keep a dog log? why do you need to keep training records what's the answer they're gonna say
0: because the courts make me do it right legal system
1: right in other words it's a got to yep if we had a mindset a mind shift Uh, or a mindset shift for law enforcement, canine handlers and civilians too. I'm telling Mm -hmm. you the same thing. Yeah. You haven't got anybody forcing you to do these things, but if you have the mindset shift where dog logs and training records become a get to instead of a got to, in Mm -hmm. other words, those are your microscope where you get to see what's in the behavior and you can make changes. If you keep the right kind of records and you get the right kind of data, then you can make better training decisions. Um, and the law enforcement communities um, needs handlers. And so they, they build the handler mindset in there. You go to a place where a vendor has taught the dogs some of the basic behaviors it already needs, or you go to a school where it, it, it's, the dog has some of these behaviors and they teach you how to operate the dog. Yeah. They teach you that if you say sit, the dog does this, you, you pay it with a petting praise, a treat or a toy. If you say down, it does this, do you pet it, praise. If it doesn't, you do this with the leash, you do that with the leash, You, however they, they go about it. They teach you to be an operator of the machine. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is, um, my first training master um, in Seattle when I got there was Tim Teakin. And he articulated what I call Teakin's law. And that is that anytime you're with your dog, one of you is training the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, if, and the corollary to that law is if you're not the trainer, you are by default the trainee. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the dogs have a way easier job than we do. They just have to get the hairless monkey to say good and give them stuff. Absolutely. Whereas we, we have to think about, oh, what does the sergeant want? What does the, what does the lieutenant want? And what's the chief want? What does the public want? Is are they going to see me do this? And now I'm going to be in trouble. Um, will there be peace in Ukraine? Who's going to (laughs) be the next president? Oh my gosh. Am I going to get kicked off of social media? All of these thoughts intrude with our presence with the dog. Yep. And then when we break presence with the dog, the dog knows it. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, if you, if you break connection, dog says, okay, yep. then they'll go ahead and either do one of, one of a few things. And one of them is they'll go entertain themselves. Why? Because entertaining themselves at a moment when you need them to do work is a great way to make, to force you to make like get
0: your attention. Yep.
1: Yep because they're just like they're just like, you know, teenagers. Sometimes teenagers will take the attention they can get if they can't get the attention they want. And dogs are no different.
2: Yep.
0: It's, and so go ahead.
1: And so, so this this process of where the law enforcement canine community is, if I could if I if you gave me that magic wand and I could wave it and I could change one thing, I would make every agency in America America teach they are canine handlers that they're not canine handlers that they're trainers first mm-hmm. their job is to handle the dog for a law enforcement purpose but the way they accomplish that dog is by thinking 24 7 365 like a trainer because if you not then by default you're the trainee yeah and dogs are way better at it way easier than we
0: are and, and I mean there's so many good points that you brought up it's you know and you've probably seen me I I'm I'm trying my best in different ways and I'm learning what works and what doesn't work, but to shift that mindset, like you said, to get the industry, especially on the law enforcement side to value and view the training where it should be, not just because they have to do it. And there's so much because they have to do it mentality. It gets cut short now, not always their fault. Like you said, my joke, I always say is, you know what the admin likes better than the six week canine handler school, a four week canine handler school. And in these days, even worse, because they're so undermanned, uh, the staffing is so low with so many agencies, it's, it's, it's even worse now than it was before, um, but once they, you know, I always start off my questions when I do a class with the, the law enforcement community is I say, how many of you were forced to be here? And, of course, most of them aren't. I mean, almost everybody says, I, I volunteered for this position. So I said, okay, well, isn't it your duty and important to be, in, you know, as close to well-educated and have an expertise in this field? Yes, Then how come when we get together and train, it's mostly about where we're going to go eat at, what we're doing, catching up, and it's, you know, okay, let's just throw some odors out, run the odors real quick, and this, that, and the other. There isn't um, a mentality of how do I get really good at this. Um, And if you look at the percentage of training time that gets put into law enforcement, and that's not just canine, but just in general – You know, again, I come from the, you know, having spent time in a special operations community and and that changing my outlook on things, which is, you know, they have at least more than 20% of their time each year is devoted to training. Law enforcement is a a fraction of a percentage sometimes gets devoted to that training. Canine is in that same kind of aspect. There's such little time devoted, even though there's that, you know, voluntary, but industry standard of 16 hours a month. And we know many don't even get truly get to do that. They they will say, Oh, while I was working, I did this and this counted, but it's tough. I mean, I've, I've racked my brain at first. I came at it, you know, kind of shaking the tree, come on like, Hey, you know, see how, see our problems. Here's our problems. And that had some effect, but then I lose some because of the message, because we have we come from a sensitive uh, community, and we don't want to be told where our faults or our errors are at. So I've shifted, and I'm trying to now find out other ways to get them to embrace the desire to be better, and that will work well, with some and not others.
1: Well, part of the problem is is um, military and law enforcement communities and even the firefighting community uh, are slow to embrace change for one reason. And that Mm -hmm. is if it's working well enough, then um, you don't want to change things and have something go awry because that's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Bad things can happen to good people when that happens. So they're slow to embrace change that way. They're very, You know, they're conservative by nature. you got to remember, cops are professional conservators. Their Mm -hmm. job is to maintain society's status quo. Mm -hmm. They're not perfect at it. They're human beings. They're flawed. we got all these problems. But the solution to this is, um, and I don't know how many of your listeners uh, listen to Jocko Willink's podcast, but Mm. Jocko Willink, uh, again, he's from the SEAL community. um, And he's definitely a been there, done that dude. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. But one of the things he says is the law enforcement community has this backwards, the whole law enforcement community, not just canine should train more. The, yes. the problem is it's not about defunding the police. It's mm-hmm. about staffing them enough that they can break out of that time and they can train enough to do that, yeah. do their work. Um, and, you know, the military, a minimum of 25% of your time, if you're, if you're, if you're an operational mm-hmm. Military person that's going to go out there and do military things, the minimum is twenty five percent of your time is devoted to training. Yep. And uh, I've seen agencies that have had that commitment to it, where, for example, they work a four ten schedule, mm-hmm. where they're four days on, three days off, and then on one day they overlap. Yes. And and on that overlap day, that's a training day. Yep. So every other week they do this now there are good things about that. You're getting a lot of training in and with human beings, you can get away with this because we can extrapolate. But that model every other week you train falls apart when you do it with dogs. <laughs> and this is what drives me crazy about some of the training systems that some law enforcement agents are using where they get together every other week. Mm-hmm. In other words, you take your squad of 10, 10 officers, a squad, B squad, a squad, you show up the local high school, um, at a football field on the first and third saturday of the month b squad second and fourth saturday of the month you show up well your five guys are there with probably another 30 guys uh hammers men and women from other agencies with their dogs mm-hmm. getting the figure and they all do this big regional group training either run by a vendor or by a regional law enforcement trainer but one way or the other they have these group training sessions and Any agency that thinks that's how you get your 16 hours is just, they just better have a pen in hand all the time to write the check. Yeah. Because dogs are context sensitive learners. And if they learn after a while, oh, first and third Saturday in this environment, on this football field here, or in these buildings, I got to do these things the rest of the week. Nobody's putting those constraints on me. Good to go. I got it. I can run the show and I will run the show as the dog. And that's, um, that's sad yeah. because it could be fixed. If handlers adopted the mindset, I'm not a handler, I'm a trainer. I'm not Correct. a handler, I'm a trainer. If they truly saw every moment as an opportunity to train, life gets better and they take responsibility for it Yes. I, I, I don't care who you are. No trainer can be with their handlers often enough to truly do the work. Yep. They are there to be a resource to help you find the things that need to be worked on, help you develop a training plan that you execute yourself and you move forward. If there's one thing in the model to change, it's that. Yeah, And it can go that way with sport people too. I've seen plenty of sport people. The only time they train is when they get together on club day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Club, you know, club days there and their dog has done nothing over the week, but you see people like, Denise Fenzie, mm-hmm. Kelly Connell, you, you know, Wayne, Ian, Ivan, you look at the you look at the legends, mm-hmm. they are constantly training. And you know what? They may not try all the new stuff on their best dog, but they'll work with so many other dogs as Correct. test platforms yep. so that they can hone their stuff and they can get their mechanics clean so that when they get to doing it with their dog, they got it down. Yep. They're dialed in. So and true. So, so that's there if you want my rub on the law enforcement community that's where i think it could train it and it you know if i do a unit audit and i go look at something first thing i'm going to look at is, is training records yeah see where you're at it, it's so, you know first thing is going to see where your performance is see with my own eyes you tell me what you do and i'm just there i'm mm-hmm. not there to write the rules i just you tell me what the rules are you define the strike zone i just look and see whether you're in the strike zone or not. Yeah. I just call balls and strikes. That's it. And, and the easiest way to do that is watch performance, look at the records, ask them to change one aspect of their performance and see whether things degrade. Yeah. And a real thing that like you would see in operations, Mm -hmm. like this is really going to happen if you're doing that.
0: Yep. What was so, I mean, we're preaching to the choir. I mean, i like, as, as you see, I try to get that, mindset stronger that we we have to devote so much more to this so to get there obviously you had to have had an aha moment for yourself you know you, you said you started off i mean you had a passion for the dogs um so that was a major driving factor when you got into it what was your aha moment to say okay obviously i probably should do something different than what i've been taught because there's so much like you brought into this which is one of the things i'm gonna be it
1: sharing was
0: was at the seed was at LA.
1: yeah yeah nineteen seventy five at Lackland yeah I'm I'm going through my first dog school so you know first week they're out there teaching to praise a rock teaching you how to make corrections on a fence teach you how to yes. wash feed pans how to you know oil dog leads the whole nine yard everything they give you all that stuff and then towards the end of the first week or in the second week they line everybody up as a the squad they march you over to a kennel they walk into the kennel and you are instructed. You are the last person in line. When you get to a kennel with a dog in it, you will stop and stand still. Next person in line, you will stand, stop and stand at the next kennel with a dog until everybody is at a kennel in, with a dog in it. At that point, the instructor will say, left face, meet mm-hmm. your dog. That dog was Astro. Okay. Um, he was a little – I at, for years I've said he was a coyote-looking thing. <laughs> But he was probably one of the early Malinois test dogs. Sure. One of the ones that they the military told the, the Dutch, they're a little small for our taste. They're feisty. We like that. But they're a little small for our taste. Um, but here this little orange thing was sitting in this kennel. And all these other guys had these big German shepherds. It looked all cool. And here's this little orange thing. And after a while, they said, go in and meet your dog. And he's like looking at me, cocking his head, but mm-hmm. he's not going to do anything. So I'm sitting in there, and I say I go in there. And if you remember the kennels at Lackland, yes. I go in through the kennel, button hook to the right, and there's the the, the doghouse is raised up, concrete mm-hmm. floor, and I could sit on the edge of the doghouse. Mm-hmm. So I decide to let just sit there because as I walk in, he just starts pacing around, and he's pacing back and forth and back and forth, and I'm sitting there watching him. And and at first I go, wow, he must be like sore or something. He looks stiff you know, I, you know, I expected him to move with a little fluidity, and he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with every step. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, well, well, maybe, like I said, maybe he's a little sore. Rough trip in from wherever he came from. Who knows? And I didn't know the significance of the music at the time. But as he was, because this was 1975, so it was a, before anybody ever heard this music, I'm sure. But as he's doing laps around the kennel, I hear this. So, and so he's doing laps clockwise around this, this kennel and I'm sitting there. And one time he comes over by me and he just stops right by me and he kind of looks at me and then he rests his chin on my leg. I go, oh, look, he wants to be friendly because I didn't know anything. Yeah. So I start to pet him immediately. His head's up and he's back. Dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun, making these circles. And... Uh, He comes by a few laps later, and he comes by this time, and he puts his chin there. I say, okay, I learned last time. I'm not going to pet him, and he puts his paw on my leg, and I said, oh, he really wants to be friendly. I go to (laughs) pet him. He's off, and he's doing lap again, and finally, he comes back, and about the the fourth time, he comes back, and he puts both paws on his legs, and he raises up, and he puts his head right next to mine, and I just hear this, I didn't know anything. I was just stupid. My hands had a life of their own. I literally just pushed his chest and beat for the gate just in time <laughs> to get out of there to hear his teeth snapping at the gate. So that was the start of a beautiful relationship yep. that lasted about into the fifth week. And in the fifth week, after teaching them healing and sit and tolerating grooming, you know everything was going okay. And then the day, this is Texas, in July Mm -hmm. on a hot asphalt tarmac. You know, it's early in the morning, but it's not that early. Yeah. It's hot out there. We had just oiled our leads, and they're saying we're gonna teach our dogs down. And doing the military method involved force. And I'm just gonna say that three times of trying to force that dog down, (laughs) and three times of having my Air Force instructors. rank on me because I was an army you know Army wuss, on Army you know lightweight that wouldn't couldn't do anything <laughs> I said okay this time no matter what I'm keeping my hand down I'm not letting that dog pull that collar out and I kept it there and I kept it there and then at one point I go oh that hurts <laughs> and I couldn't you know get my mouth out of his hand I start to make the correction and uh, the instructors are screaming at me why are you army! fill in the blank yeah 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 (laughs) and then they go oh look at the blood and i was just bleeding all over the place my hands swole up like a weather balloon for two weeks Mm -hmm. that put me back i couldn't you know couldn't go back and join that class they gave that dog to another handler who was promptly bit the next time he took the dog into the vet the dog went right (sighs) through his bicep wow they said maybe this dog isn't a patrol dog we'll make him a sentry dog <laughs> because do you remember the difference between well, yes, no, did they, they didn't even yeah, have no. Well, were, it,
0: it, it had died out before I got there, obviously. But obviously, the guy who I learned from uh was the was army sentry dog handler working DC. So,
1: so I got to see all that so, stuff. So those dogs didn't have an out. Oh, no, no! Release command. No oh, nothing. No. It was just, and some poor marine was working with that dog. Had another interaction with it. that dog same dog Astro bit him in the throat. So he got bit in the neck. I'm at the, I'm at the post bar wrapped up and we're like commiserating about our respective injuries. And he says, yeah, but at least I'm not going to have to ship with that dog. Well, except the instructor certified that dog and he and that dog shipped off to Morocco together. So I have (sighs) no idea what happened to them. All I know is I finished out my class with a different dog. Everything was fine. All that stuff. But from that first day on, from that first day in the kennel, kind of, mm-hmm. but from that day when he bit me, when they were telling me to do what I did, I said, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. And I started looking for it. I started trying different things. You know, I tried to get better at doing that the way they told me to. And I did. I tried to get, uh, try to find more ways to motivate the dog. And through the years, I just have kept playing with it. So that seed took time to germinate. Yeah. It didn't make the changes right away, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the things when we tell people things, when we try to teach them, when we're helping mentor people. You have to realize um, seeds don't sprout and yield fruit right away. True, you may see the sprout, but it takes time for things to grow to the point where they'll yield fruit.
0: It's and and You've that's. Got to be patient. Yeah, people. I was just going to say patience. Patience is the big part that we all lack. And that's with us, with the dogs, all of these things that fall into that aspect. The, you know, so obviously, you know, just like you, you know, the seeds planted in my life, just like you just kind of described a similar situation, military and so on. But then for you entering into law enforcement and, you know, I'll, I'll skip some of the details here. But obviously you became a big fan of the use of condition reinforcer, a.k.a. marker, so forth. How, because I know how it was received when I started sharing it with the detection dog world, what did you go through as you were sharing this with obviously a big city police department and then you being part of the Washington State Police Canada Association? How did you navigate some of the... I guess trials and tribulations of sharing this kind of information and the value of using it. it's getting obviously we see it's much more popular now than ever it used to be, but how did you you know you were ahead of me so how did you get through some of that?
1: Um. So I'll answer by saying like when I would later in life after I started making the change I'd start talking about the things that I did, and people in the clicker training community, for example, would mm-hmm. come to me and say, well, this is wonderful. I really appreciate what you're doing. How do I get other people to do it? You know, how do I get them to listen? Yeah. You produce a superior product. Correct. You produce a product people envy, and then their curiosity will ask them, well, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. And if you're smart, you don't force it on them. You say, I don't know if you, you want to do the route I went, Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, you know, but if you want to, I'll tell you that I will. I will help you every step of the way if you want to, but you sure? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what happens. You know, you can you can take your, your your choke collar and put it on the dead ring. I don't even make them take it off. I just say just put it on the dead ring. Or if you got a first saver, just fold it over, clip it that way so it's not a constriction collar. Mm-hmm. And let's see what happens. See what happens if you can figure out how to get this dog to follow you without relying on leash corrections. Mm-hmm. And we ju- we just start there. And then Through the years, I mean, look, in the law enforcement community, you either love me or you hate me. There's not much middle ground. Sure. There are some people that will spit every time they hear my name and there are others (laughs) that will that that are fans. Sure. But there's not much middle ground. Um, Even within my own units, when I was supervising, there Mm -hmm. would be some that, that, right, and, you know, that's. That's part of it. That is the nature what I call the SWSWSWSW mindset, Uh mindset, which is some will, some won't. So what someone's waiting?
0: Yeah, that's there's always
1: there's always there's always someone out there who is eager for the knowledge, eager for the opportunity to to learn. So SWSWSWSW is the way I survive when I'm out there trying to to teach and train and help people along and and Believe me, it's not because I'm better than they are. Mm -hmm. The only thing I can say is I'm here because I made more mistakes than you have.
0: Yep, and And... SW works really well with your name too. (laughs) 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 What would Steve White do? (laughs) The and those are that's such a good point. The you know everything you just said there because it's so true. You know some will, some won't, some want to, some will be ready to do it. Um, And and it was I kind of. As I entered into the sport world in the past few years, uh, it's been longer than that, I guess, now I think about it. But anyway, as I was exposed to it more and more and more, I was so surprised that the sport community that comes from so many other training programs that they do that use condition reinforcers, all of a sudden, when they went into detection, said, oh, no, this is bad. And I was like, wait, what? How, How? And it was an inherited learning thing. Just like the cops. And so
1: explain to me the I think for me and the audience, yeah. Really give me some depth about what you what you consider to be inherited learning.
0: So inherited learning is like you said, you know, do what I as a I'm the trainer, do what I do. You're just a handler. You don't know any better. Here's what I say to do. And Obviously, when someone would come in with a different idea, it's basically shut up in color, do what I do, or we're going to ostracize you, or you can't come to our group. The inherited learning is master-apprentice relationship. You know, Bob Bailey, like you mentioned, speaks about that quite a bit versus that science, you know, aspect. You know, how do we get better? Like you said, results and data show us where things work, where things may not work so well, mm-hmm. being, adju- being able to adjust. But inherited learning is far more rigid, and it's carried on generation to generation. And that's where uh, both the law enforcement and I see now a little bit in the sport world, which is motivated differently. We can bring up, you know, because they pay versus getting paid, so they want results. But still, despite that, the inherited learning aspect is pretty strong. You know, they it's well, I, this is yeah. what my trainer says.
1: I think the one the one sentence is we. This, we do this because that's the way we've always done it. Yes, is, base, is the basics on it. Now, the next step after that, when someone is challenged on the well, that's the way we've always done it, then come the just so stories. People start making up reasons why we do this, like you know, pack you know, pack theory. <laughs> fill in the blank there are a bunch there are yeah. a bunch of them that, that come out there yeah i just yeah i just said that i just torqued off a bunch of people right oh i'm there. sure you're you're going to lose some followers oh on this uh, i'm now.
0: not worried Get about over. it I, I do it. enough on my but, own <laughs> but
1: but the the reality is is that these this is not they're not mutually exclusive no that respect for the old ways can be maintained mm-hmm. if You truly tried the scientific approach to this. If you sit there and you look at your results and say every and I I like frame it, you know, Skinner created the uh, he he created an operant conditioning paradigm that a lot of people had broken down into four quadrants, positive and negative reinforcement, positive and negative punishment. Great four quadrants. I like a model that's used for human beings um, on a podcast called Manager Tools by a couple of old army West pointers who've gone into the corporate world and teach people um, how to be effective managers and and hence leaders. Um, And they say there's only two kinds of feedback, affirming and adjusting. If you adopt, adopt the mindset, affirming and adjusting feedback is what every outcome, every training exercise, every deployment, every trial gives you affirming and adjusting feedback in various forms. Mm -hmm. Affirming is we like that. We want to do more of that. We'll just keep doing that. Adjusting is what do we need to tweak to get over into the affirming category?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Or what do we need to tweak to take that affirming thing and kick it up a notch? Mm -hmm. If we think in terms of affirming and adjusting, then all of a sudden, it takes a lot of the emotional baggage out of the terms that come with uh, punishment and reinforcement, particularly yeah. when you're dealing with positive punishment and negative reinforcement. Mm-hmm. It seems like you know people look at the quadrants and they say, on this diagonal axis, we're all good, <laughs> but on this one, <sighs> uh, yeah. ooh. Right? And yep. they, they have a point. They mm-hmm. have a point. But see, the thing is... <clears throat> I've seen a lot of dogs have been trained with almost nearly all positive reinforcement and they are quivering baskets of fetal jelly huddled oh, in the yeah. corner yeah. and really can't. And, <clears throat> and I've seen other dogs trained with some pretty harsh, aversive methods that are happy. Well balanced going through life. Just cool. Like what, what's next? Let's go have some fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've seen enough of those apparent disparities, those anomalies, the things that people that, that I don't believe they're all, Truly anomalies. I've now come to the conclusion that is the the most reliable predictor of successful outcomes is the skill of the trainer, as opposed to the specific method being used. That if you get somebody who's really good at what they do, they know how to make up for the shortcomings of a method. Because here's the dirty secret: every method has a problem. Yes, it has a weak, it has a strength. Thank you. You just got to be willing to accept your weak weaknesses and know how to work around them to to leverage the strengths.
0: Hundred percent. 100%. 100%. I've, I've been trying to share that more. And I have a funny, uh, by the time this airs, it have already been out for a while. But in the next few days, I have a uh, little clickbait video coming up, where I put the problem with brick walls or problem with walls or bricks something like that. And it's just to bring up the fact that I say start off right off the bat going, guess what the problem with the brick wall is doing detection. It's the same problem with the wheels, same problem with the boxes, same problem with the pipes. Everything has a limitation. Everything has its design, and you have to understand why you're using it at that time and for how long to use it, based on the dog in front of you. There That's is why no you perfect.
1: Can't stay in one place too long. Correct. Correct. And it, it's not just in the foundation. You stay in one place later on. How many people, like some of your some of your listeners, I'm sure, have been in the obedience world long enough to hear about the six week plateau? <laughs> that like at week six of an obedience class. All the dogs hit, you know, these dogs hit a plateau. Mm-hmm. Plateaus are cre- are our creation. Mm-hmm. We did something to stagnate, to, to, to stall the trajectory of learning, and a plateau is then created. Yep. Okay. Take that as adjusting feedback. Now, what adjustment do we make to get us back out of that upward trajectory?
0: Predictability is boring. Yeah. yeah. And that's and that's one of the things that especially with dogs, uh, once it becomes very predictable you'll see a lot of dogs go, okay, yeah. And then with that predictability aspect, then like you said earlier, they'll start guessing, aka cheating, or doing whatever to, you know, because now they've done it enough. We've become even more predictable, probably faster than whatever method we were doing. And now the dog goes, oh, okay, I I got this game down. And we're like, I don't know why. And then we stay in that area for two that much longer because we think we have a problem that we created because everything we did was so predictable and the dogs, that's just like, this is just one part of that, but this is what the dogs start going. Okay, I'll just do this because I know what you're going to do. I know how this game's played and then errors start happening and the dog either gets fatigued with it or bored with it or tries to create their own game. There's so many different things we can go down because each dog is got, it's going to have its own little way of handling it. Um, same with their handler and it, versus one of the things I try to share frequently too is change that, you know, the, especially dogs who, again, strong memory, dogs who make inferences really well, enjoy the change. That's what motivates them a lot of times is like, Ooh, this is different. How do I solve this problem? Um, but all of that is creates and fosters that learning. Um, but just like you said earlier too, we, as humans are very, uh, prof- you know, very, have a tendency to be in that rut to stay doing what's comfortable because it was comfortable, and that's why. Um, versus stepping out of that comfortability, doing something different, trying just like your whole point you made. Okay, I'm gonna make one little tweak to what you're doing, what, what happens? Boom, and then you know the, the wheels fall off, or we see something different. So it's uh, it, it, very important points for both sides of the equation, whether you're sport or you're professional, is to make sure, you know, you, you're changing things up enough and at the right pace of the dog. But most times I can tell you, and Steve, tell me if you agree or not, it's when it's sooner than you think. So many times people think, oh, I'm not ready for this change yet, or my dog's not ready for the change yet. But us as trainers can look at it and go, oh, no, you're ready. It's, you know.
1: Welcome to Plateauville, population two. (laughs) You and your dog. Yes, exactly. So seriously, um, That's, like I say, that's where the art of being a trainer comes from is, is understanding criterion shift, knowing what, what to ask for next, knowing how to keep your, your shaping approximations, your, your work moving in, in the trajectory you want. You want that vector towards progress. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to stall that with sticking in one spot, just a little too long. And this isn't just in dog training not just in police canine, not just in canine nose work, not just in obedience and confirmation, all that good stuff. In daily life, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a guy by the name of Ro- Dr. Robert Glover who wrote the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And it, he doesn't have this in the book, but if he, if he talks about it, and I, I, I think at this year's Pen Vet, I used this, this diagram that he has that he describes. At this level right down here, this is the comfort zone. Yep. And up here is the stress zone Mm -hmm. in between the two is the stretch zone. Yep. Your goal is to get yourself progressively more comfortable operating in the stretch zone every day in every aspect of your life. Yep. And your dog doing the same thing, not pushing it, not forcing it, Mm -hmm. but helping, helping ourselves take a look at our outcomes and say, Oh, that didn't work out quite the way I thought. And instead of, Placing a value judgment on it, say, okay, what do I need to adjust next time I'm confronted with this situation? How do I handle it? How do I move forward? What do I do? Same thing with the dog.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you ask something of the and, and you got to remember, anytime you ask something of the dog and it doesn't deliver what you expected, that's because you asked something, you asked that dog to deliver something you hadn't prepared it to deliver yet. Yep. You got to remember that little three letter word, yet, is the important part. If you just Stop before you say yet. Then you're browbeating yourself. Oh, it's completely my fault. Well, yes, it is. But that doesn't mean, (laughs) yes. Responsibility is on your shoulders. But let's not talk about guilt here. Yes. Let's talk about responsibility. The responsibility Mm -hmm. then is to take that information and say, now when confronted with this situation, what am I going to do? Well, maybe I'll prepare my dog a little better before I ask for that again. Yeah. And here are my my shaping steps to prepare the dog better for that.
0: Absolutely. And... You bring up one of the things uh, for those you brought up Jocko a little while ago. Those who haven't seen David Goggins yet, talk about stretching past your capabilities or, or outside your comfort zone, I should say. That is another guy that will, you know, if you listen to the things that he teaches um, and what he puts himself through, it's all about not getting comfortable, not staying comfortable, get in mm-hmm. those places that are, you're only going to grow when you're stretched out and you start doing things that make you uncomfortable. And it, and it gets over these fears. And I'll bring this into the sport world because this is a really good point. So the, a lot of the sport teams will will train and do their things uh, wherever they're at. doesn't matter. I've seen it all over the place. They train with their group, their trainer, whatever. And then now it's time for the trial. And this is the first time they really got stretched or put into an, an uncomfortable zone. The dog's looking at the handler going, what is wrong with you? And then sees all these other stressed dogs, stressed people, you know, all of this is going on, the dog is taking this in. And then it doesn't go, your, your first trial happens the way it happens. You, you, you either pass, but it's not where you thought it was. Any number of things occur. All of those mostly are uncomfortable or have a negative association to it. So then you go to your next trial. Well now that stress is cumulative and you're that much more stressed at your next one. And you wonder why training goes so well or the little uh you know you guys went you guys tried something new, you went to a new place just before the, this trial and it all seemed like it worked really well but then all of a sudden you go to trial and it falls apart again and so much of that is because of you know get, you have to get out of that box you have to get out and stretch yourself self you have to do that a whole lot more in the training not just a few times before the competition part and that's
1: so you're trying to tell me that ring nerves dogs don't experience ring <laughs> nerves
0: oh or, man
1: or, or you know, the reality is dogs don't experience ring nerves. Mm-hmm. We experience ring nerves. Of course. Nerves, and we become the the primary discriminative stimulus to this dog. Oh, says, yes. This is different.
0: What is wrong with him or her?
1: And the solution to that is um, the military's, the military, I don't know. I mean, the real military, not the, Air Force, like the Air, <laughs> Air Force, but like the Army. The Army. Yeah. We say train hard, fight easy. Yeah and and when in my realm where i'm a a primarily a tracking trainer so tracking is my bread and butter urban tracking and harsh environment tracking so Mm -hmm. for me um the thing that i'm focused on is overtraining. so i try to take the operating environment and bring as many elements of that into the training environment as i possibly can Mm -hmm. so the dog is exposed to them and then i try to amp that up and put it on steroids yeah i try to synthetically um inject stress into the handler so the dog is experienced has experience of their handler smelling and acting in this stressed out way but in a context where the dog can then become successful and it becomes a discriminative stimulus for success as opposed to failure Mm -hmm. so that both sides both ends of the leash wind up getting inoculated to stress yes and if you want to see the model for this it's an old book like from the 70s or early 80s, by Masad Ayyub, um, a firearms instructor, who wrote this book called Stress Fire. Mm-hmm. And the basic thing he said is: once you learn the basics of marksmanship, which is you know breathing, relaxing, aiming, that's sight alignment and smooth trigger squeeze. Once mm-hmm. you get that, then everything else you should do, you should have something on the line. Mm-hmm. You're gonna go shoot with a buddy and low score buys lunch mm-hmm. um you know you go shoot with your neighbor and you got to mow his lawn if if he beats you the whole point on this is to put stress on it have mm-hmm. something on the line so you got some skin in the game yep figure out a way to to synthetically create stress and then at the same time also separate from this on the human end of this because we're the ones that can do this because we actually have a forebrain that allows us to extrapolate and take something and put it in the future is go through the mental drill of going through a that situation and experiencing it successfully And it have you heard about the old basketball experiment basketball hoop shooting experiment so they took they go took ahead. three groups of college students and they brought them all in they had everybody shoot some free throws and they broke the group into three groups so that the groups were, had the same basic average of successful three, free, free throws shot. Mm -hmm. And they told the the groups, okay, group one, come back in a month. We'll see you have a great time. Group two, go home and practice shooting 10 free throws a day. And we'll see you in a month. Great. Group three, mentally practice shooting free throws. But we want you to not just think about it. We want you to mentally go through it. Get in a quiet place. Get in a quiet state. Go through the feeling of like that. You can feel the breeze on your face because you're playing on an outdoor court. You bounce the ball and you can hear that kind of echoey tinny sound as it as it hits the pavement and comes back up into your hand. You can feel the texture of the pebbles and where the, the seams are in alignment with that. You can go ahead and feel that thing as you go up and get it over your head you look at the basket and you can see right through the hoop in between the net and you're looking at that spot right behind the forward edge of the front of the hoop and you get there you feel yourself bending down you feel your hands the wrist flick as that ball releases so that you impart some backspin which will help make it more likely to stay in the area of the hoop if it hits all of those pieces you have to mentally go through so they're they're bringing in all they're bringing in sight sound hearing probably not taste but smell into this whole thing trying to get that mental picture as completely sensory immersive as they can so they brought the groups back later on the group that did the mental practice scored about the same as the group with the 10 10 free throws a day hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. so this this process has been brought into all sorts of elite level sports right now we should do the same thing oh absolutely we should you know we should go through this and um, I do a certification process for some dogs that do some pretty important explosive detection work right now and I tell the handlers you know that when I come by and do a certification they're stressed out because why we've been trained by our schools to have test anxiety Mm -hmm. we've been trained to cram for the test Mm -hmm. instead of just living our lives prepared for the test And when it happens, Stephen Covey calls that the farmer's mindset versus the the school mindset. The school mindset is cram information is in get through the test and then purge it. You don't (laughs) intend to purge it, but it purges itself. So you're ready for the next cram. Whereas farmers, there's no rest. If you aren't planting, then you're weeding. And if you aren't weeding, you're watering and fertilizing. If you're not weeding and watering and fertilizing, then you are going ahead and getting things ready for the harvest. Mm-hmm. If you're not harvesting, then you're now preparing your equipment for the next year's harvest. It is a non-stop cycle. There's always something to do. You're always immersed in this and you're always staying up on your game in this. The same thing should be done with our with our with our dogs and you should look at this. You go into that certification and realize the worst that happens if you use certification or or your your you know your test for whatever title it is, I lose my certification money. Nothing else matters. Yeah. You know, we, but we attach way more meaning to it. But like for these, these explosive detection dogs I'm talking about, I say, if you mess up on a regular work day, the consequences are way more grave than if you fail this cert. Mm-hmm. If you fail the cert, you get a chance to retest in a reasonable amount of time. You'll give be offered the opportunity for remedial training, make yourself better. And you get another shot to try it again. Yep. No big deal. Yeah you blow it once on your day to day and a lot of people are going to have a really bad day. It, you know, people can die. Yeah. And so that's why you really need to put test anxiety and stuff like that in perspective.
0: Oh, for sure. And, And you're bringing up something I know it's also, uh, you've been teaching and talking about a lot more is the poison cues, things that, uh, it goes both ways, but mostly starts on the human side of thing, but the, the poison cues, and I'll let you kind of talk about that and, and describe it for the, the viewers and the listeners, uh, what you mean by that. And, and cause my, tr- my trainer, Natalie, that, uh, uh, she actually, because of, I believe one of the things that she listened to from you is going to go into this a little bit more with some of her classes coming up, but I want to let you talk about it cause this is where it came
1: from. Well, poison cues, um, You know, the original research was done at the University of North Texas. Uh, Can't remember Nicole's last name, but she was the grad student that was doing this in pursuit of her master's degree uh, under the supervision of Jesus Rosales Ruiz, who is the Ph.D. director of the Applied Behavior Analysis program there. Um, And essentially, um, they... Took a dog, it's a pretty interesting thing. So you have to buy a couple of concepts. One is that you can use one cue to reinforce another behavior. Cues can act as reinforcers. Mm -hmm. Essentially, if you use a clicker, your clicker is a cue to come eat. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you're using the high probability behavior. Of eating to reinforce the low probability behavior of searching or sitting or healing or whatever you, you're training. Thank you, Dr. Premack, for articulating the principle about behaviors with a high probability of occurrence can reinforce behaviors with a low probability of occurrence. Not only that, but we extrapolate the cues for those high probability of occurrence behaviors can reinforce low probability of occurrence behaviors. So can, you can use them as markers. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they trained this dog uh, to recall under two conditions. Condition one was, um, she would operantly train the dog just to, to come and then attach the cue, um, then to the dog and the dog would come Mm -hmm. and they would click and treat to reinforce the dog's coming and got a response with that in a separate context. They would train the dog to recall also, but instead of click and treat, there would be a leash correction. A little leash pull. So they would say, puneer, leash pull, and coax the dog in and give the dog a treat. So again, puneer, leash correction, here. Now, already I know the language is loaded. Ben means come, puneer means punish, but let's not worry about that. Sure. Because to the dog, the dog doesn't matter. They're both, they both mean... Yeah. That's, <laughs> what, that's, that's what the dog's here. But they know that this means do this, and that means do that. Yeah. So they get it. It's like the... It's like... To, to dogs, we're all the peanuts adults,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? You know, we're yep. all going, yep. wah, 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 wah. <laughs>
2: wah. all
1: right. They just get used to hearing it all the time. So, they got this dog doing this thing. She created a grid in the room and had a bunch of different objects around the perimeter of the, this. And so, she was going to reinforce the dog for going and touching different objects in the room. And she did it with the Ben conditioned. So the dog would go out and touch a drawer on a on a dresser, and she would then mark it with you know Ben, and the dog would come and then she would feed it. Dog would go out to another, like a planter, Ben. Dog would come back, you know, click treat, everything's fine and dandy. And they would measure on each successive trial how far the dog ranged away, how far the dog was engaged in the activity of trying to make her click. Because you've got to remember. They think they're training us to say, good, you know, say click and give them stuff or to click and give them stuff. And the way we do that is we become kind of stupid trainees and we kind of ask more and more. So she's seeing how far the dog is willing to range out with this grid on the floor, time passes, they do the other condition with the, um, Puneer. And what they found was the dog wasn't as willing to range as far away. Mm -hmm. It wasn't willing to set itself up to get that little leash pull. And then the coaxing and the treat. So when I had the freedom to choose in that condition and learn that way, it behaved one way and it would range farther out the dog, the, the marker for that condition that condition, reinforcer that, that marker as a condition, reinforcer was more effective than the one that was created through an aversive contingency. Mm -hmm. So the reason I want to bring this up is that, um, it's not just confined to how a behavior is trained. Yes, that will carry through for the rest of that behavior's existence. That's why if I get a dog from Europe that's been trained already, I scrap the European cues. Yeah the dog knows the physio- you know knows the, um, the physical movement it takes to acquire behavior and to do things. So we just reshape the behaviors and attach new cues they already know the movement once they mm-hmm. learn this new cue and they it winds up saving so much trouble
0: absolutely dog just
1: because the dog was trained in german for the first year and a half that it was there doesn't mean you need to train it in german for the rest of its life mm-hmm. or in czech or in, in you know slovak yeah doesn't matter you you can you can go ahead change those cues and your life gets better and the example is um You see a dog on the bite on a sleeve and you try to call it off with its European cue. Yep. It's like you hear its pitch go up. You see it bear down. You see it start looking around like when's the boom coming down? Mm -hmm. And then you take it with this free shaped release that we trained separately, spits it out, comes back. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the power of a cue that has been poisoned is underestimated. And that was because that was instilled from the start of that cue. Absolutely. Now that being said, think about this. In our lives, we have all sorts of poison cues. Mm-hmm. Any of us who've been married, all right, and after a while, you know, after the honeymoon phase is over <laughs> and all those neurochemicals no longer have you in control, and you decide, you know, one one or the other of you decides, hey, now's the moment to get a little frisky, <laughs> and you start to go through the old moves to get it started. Yeah. Uh, the the spouse will go. Yeah, not feeling it. it, I'm not thinking so. And if you repeat that often enough, now just the act of beginning that will become a poison cue, which will mean switch off. Yep. And it happens in all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. It happens in sports. It happens in um, driving a car. You you can just have one or two bad experiences. Now, all of a sudden, you will avoid something. You will Mm -hmm. stay away from it. Or you will become nervous if you have to do it, and you have a heightened sense of anxiety. Uh, poison cues are really, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Insidious. Mm-hmm. They slide in without you realizing it, then yeah. all of a sudden, bam, they're there. And the whole the whole discriminative stimulus of a trial environment being different than a training environment is a case of poison cues coming in there and some of them were poisoned before you ever got there by other experiences in your life and you get there and now you're stressed because it's a similar enough situation to the tests you took in school mm-hmm. to the tryouts for the sports teams fill in the blank
0: mm-hmm. yep for sure so,
1: so it's really important to and and it all boils down to this we've all been talked about behaviors the ABCs, antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. Mm-hmm. The contingencies control behaviors. I tell you what, you clean up your antecedents and your consequences, the behaviors get clean. Yeah, murky antecedents, murky consequences, so true, make for murky behaviors. And the, here's the problem the murky behavior should, your, should be your barometer to tell you. So, like a behavior starts to grade, you should say something I'm doing with my antecedents or my consequences is messing this up, but instead, we go. Dog doesn't get it. Yeah. He'd never done that before. (laughs) He's just being stubborn.
0: Yep. What (coughs) what would be, so uh, for some of the detection uh, people, I don't care what side it is, sport or uh, professional, give a good poison cue that happens in training that you see fairly regular from your point of view.
1: (coughs) Detection. Oh, a big one Mm -hmm. is getting the toy back.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: Oh yeah. You know, for dogs that are working for a toy and it's about possessing the toy and a lot of trainers train, well, I want that dog to want to possess it because that tells me he really (laughs) wants to do this. Great. But then you see this battle between the handler and the dog to get the toy back. Adversarial relationship. I see that through the course of a protracted search exercise, the dog's desire to perform diminishes yep. with each battle. Yeah. See dogs that don't have to have that battle. In other words, you want that dog to think spitting out the toy means bing, next level. Yep. This is like a video game, man. That's like that's like Mario making it all the way to the end. And now you hear the music and you're ready to go to the next level. Yes. That's what spitting out the toy should mean. But instead it means womp, 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 sad trouble.
0: Yep game's over. This sucks. I don't want to keep playing anymore because I know I'm going to lose or you're going to string me up or whatever it ends up being because there wasn't proper training and communication that you are not an adversary for the toy, you know, and so much of that is adversarial.
1: And see, and and I'm going to lay props out here to Randy Hare for this. Mm -hmm. Randy Hare really helped change my mind about this because If you look at the way Randy selects dogs Mm -hmm. and the way he trains with his system, everything's built about game.
0: Yes. And
1: that the ball is that ball on a string is nothing but a vehicle for a game with the handler. Yeah. in the early stages at the box later on in other contexts, it's all about the game that if I do this and I find this thing, they're going to have this great game. Mm -hmm. And I can't have the game by myself. I can ent- I can entertain myself a little bit with this toy, but really the game, the fun part comes when this other, this hairless monkey has a hold of it and he's jerking and swinging <laughs> around and he's telling me things and he's whacking me on the side and the dog goes, like, this is so much fun. This is what you want dogs to think their day-to-day life is. I, lo- I tell people that police dogs think that their day-to-day job is nothing but the best game of hide-and-seek and tug-of-war ever. Mm-hmm. Period. They just think that that's like the way it is and that the handler, if they, if handlers think as trainers, they make the dog realize that everything that dog wants flows through them. Mm -hmm. This is like, we're talking like, you know, like Ghostbusters, Keymaster (laughs) thing, like everything flows through you. Yeah. Once they understand it, all, everything in the world flows through you, man, you got them. Yeah. You, You own their soul. They'll give you anything you, you need. And you give them what they want, they will give you what you need.
0: Yeah. Again, because clarity exists now, Mm -hmm. not like you said, the murkiness, the confusion that happens. And, you know, to kind of give my example of some of the poison cues I see, uh, I'll add the sport world to it. since Not not so many of the sport world use toy, um, but the sport world so much is the murkiness of body language cues, you know, or body positioning themselves because there, there was this, uh, thought process that you don't want to get involved with any kind of presentation with your hand. So then it became heavily about body pressures. And then then the quick, in training, the quick response and reward delivery when the dog was on odor versus all of a sudden when they don't know the answer anymore, they de- they're doing a single blind or they're in trial, they wait forever for the dog and the dog is like, I don't get this anymore. And then the, these murky oh, yeah. body positions that were known before now. So then now the body positions become a poisonous cue because now the dog's confused. I don't know what this means anymore. It's inconsistent now. Or the show yep. me, you know, kind of thing.
1: Time after time, the dog is going here. It's right here. And this goes back to our conversation we had before. Uh, you, you had an online, you posted a question about uh, whether dogs... Uh, detector dogs need a trained final response, yes, or whether people should just learn to read their dogs. And my response then is the same thing I'm gonna tell you now it's not an either or question, bro. Mm-hmm. It is a both and, yeah, things get better when you have a really good, um, trained final response yeah. and somebody that knows how to read their dog's behavior, it's for sure.
0: Physical. Absolutely, and,
1: and most systems I know of, i we're one of the few in Seattle. I know of that as a part of our curriculum, we have a seven step or an eight step process for teaching people how to read their dogs. Yeah. And the nice thing is it's simple. It's elegant. Really. You're only looking at eight things and that's it. But when you break it down, you can get a degree of granularity that's unbelievable and you can leverage it like six Sigma to really figure out which are the most um, effective signals that the dog gives you about when they are in or out of odor and knowing when they're out is as important or more important as knowing when they're in.
0: Yes. So true. I I bring up one of the biggest things I, I like as an evaluator or a judge in sport is when I can see a handler be confident walking out of an area and telling me nothing is there. That tells me they actually know and trust their dogs because it's so much harder to do that than it is to go. I think there's something here or there's something here because we both see it all the time. Well, I saw some change over, you know, they, they don't ever want to say there's nothing here. That's a very yeah. hard thing to do.
1: You know, and it's funny, you can hear it in the you can hear it in their voice, too. Yes. We, you know, the difference between <laughs> <laughs> alert yeah and alert
0: yep. Oh yeah. No, the, uh, one of the other questions, um, this was, one, this one's from Natalie. She wanted me to ask this one for me. Um, what is the negative punishment procedures that you would probably do or describe when a dog gives a, you can, it, well, I'm just gonna call it a false alert, but the typical term false alert, and there's a lot of different now definitions that people will use, but when the dog's indicating and there's nothing there, what do you, what is your negative punishment procedure or some ideas that you use when this
1: occurs? Um, it depends, yeah, of course. Um, it depends upon it on how much information do I have to know that the dog is completely wrong. Yeah, I can, I like you go to my website and you take a look at the article on um, a division of labor. I set up an exercise where um, 45 out of 47 dogs went to the diagonally opposite corner of a warehouse in Las Vegas (laughs) on a summer evening during a building search for a person. And why? Because that's where the scent was available to them. And so I always have to do this. So my, my negative, my negative reinforcement procedures for that are really less about a negative reinforcement procedure than is like, no, that's not going to pay. Just Mm -hmm. we walk off and move on. Mm -hmm. And you know, if I, it's, if it's in an operational context or a, a certification context, I try and direct the team to a place where I feel they're going to be in a clear spot to let the dog clear its head. And then they keep on moving on from there. Yeah. Um, but I don't make a big, I, I don't make a big deal about it. I don't, I don't correct. I don't, I don't use a. Um, a marker unless the dog aggresses on the source. Okay. That was okay, her other know, question. Then was if that? I yeah. use if I use a negative punisher punishment yep. marker, a yep. condition negative punisher, yep. then that will that will be a you know quick verbal and then put the dog in a position where they can't make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. If you get a dog that's aggressing on a on a target when it shouldn't, that's a handler error. Sure. And I will mark I will mark it as a handler error, not a dog error. The dog may, may make the initial mistake but if you've got the aggressive component on it that's on you oh yeah you've, and usually aggression on the target is something you we have created
2: mm-hmm.
1: by a combination of our initial uh you know association with odor i hate the term imprinting i know it's a term of art in of the course. detection world yeah but imprinting has a very specific meaning in the behavioral realm when you're talking with ethologists and they're the ones who coined it first
0: yeah no, nope, very.
1: So I prefer the Pavlovian term of association. Yeah. So I stick with that. That being said, that odor imprinting or association process can have residual effects later on. And this is where I think I'll talk about the the, the pigeons. Um, but also the lack of faith a handler may or may not have in that dog in blind training exercises after that, where they are, the dog is at it and, and they're trying to indicate... And they don't get it. We'll force the dogs to start. Well, apparently you didn't see it. So <laughs> I will do this harder so that you yes, get it. Yes, so that you exactly. can really see me do it. I said, it's right here. And then then once that dog gets into a spot where it thinks, I don't want to say it thinks, but but it starts to offer a, a, an alert behavior, whether it's on or off source, and it's missed, then the dog will go, okay, we're going to bang this yeah. harder and make you make you see it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and so here's where early imprinting, early association has a thing. University of Chicago, they train pigeons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Pigeons in an operant chamber, Skinner box. Yep. They train these pigeons. Usually you see pigeons trained to peck a key, right? Yep. Yep. Peck a key a number of times, and then woo, you get some grain. Yay. Box clicks, and there's your stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they took the this group of pigeons, and what they did instead, they they trained them to wear a little helmet. They put the little helmet on the pigeons, and then instead of teaching them to peck, they trained them to tap their head against the wall, head banging. Oh. Bang, you know, <laughs> long before the music made it popular, yeah. they were headbanging.
0: banging. Piggins, pigeons were head banging.
1: Right. So these pigeons are banging their head on the wall, and they're and they get to the point where they had a high rate of response to get one single reinforcer. Got that behavior, and they put it under stimulus control. They could turn it on and turn it off with a light. Right. Everything's great. Then. They extinguished the behavior and reinforced key pecking. So now they're pecking with their beak like they normally do. Mm-hmm. And they use a different light to cue that behavior. Never, never showed them the head banging light again. Got the behavior of key pecking until it was strong. Mm-hmm. Deep reinforcement history, solid stimulus control. Then they put it on an extinction schedule. They started this pigeon would peck at it nothing happened. And you know what the pigeon then said? Well, that didn't work. Let's try this yep. bang and started banging their head in the wall. Resurgence is a thing. Yep. And this is why you have to think about why you why you train things first. This is why I prefer back chain methods that don't mm-hmm. involve physical interaction with the object, because mm-hmm. I don't want lean reinforcement schedules creating the, the resurgence that we've, that we've got. And by definition, explosives dogs, have lean reinforcement schedules. Sure, because if you think about it, narcotics dogs and, and canine nose work dogs, canine nose work dogs mm-hmm. know that the vast majority of time they're get out there and told to the search, they're going to find something.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Drug detection dogs, they know because they're applied in a circumstance where they have at least reasonable suspicion, if not probable cause. Yep. They're probably going to find something. Mm-hmm. The work trains those dogs. Mm-hmm. Explosives dogs, not so much. And cadaver. Explosives dogs. Check venues before people go in mm-hmm. to make sure there's nothing there. Yep. They don't find explosives, they just give people peace of mind before they enter. Exactly. End. Yeah. The work detrains them. Yep. It is the most mentally demanding form of dog training there is to keep an explosive dog on its game.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing
1: is nothing is harder. Yeah.
0: And training is always a vending machine, but then all of a sudden reality becomes a very low producing, if ever,
1: slot machine. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and the thing is you To get a good explosive dog, you really have to work hard to trick it. And you think it, and everything you do to make it think that a training exercise is a real operation, eventually some of the things you have to do to make that safe to do become discriminative stimulus that's safe to do it. So in other words, you're not going to do it in a room you haven't cleared already because you don't want to correct the dog for being wrong when he's Mm -hmm. actually on something that's there. Yeah. So you got to clear the room first. Well, how are you going to clear the room first?
0: Yep. Search it and then go back. With another dog. Yep. Oh, yeah, I' did that way, yes, correct. I was just saying like the typical way was, the room yeah, and
1: hopefully the people will find everything in there. So then the dogs are either gonna know that another dog's been there. Correct. Or a whole lot of people have been done a whole lot of yeah. manipulation of objects in this space. yep. I
0: would say the and, other one was they searched a room and then after they search it, walk out, someone puts the a drop drop aid in there, they go back and search it again, Oh, look, lo and behold, there's something there now.
1: right. Yeah. And it's pretty soon the dogs know, hey, second time in here before me. This one's gonna be good,
0: yep, absolutely. They they are very astute at that.
1: And then they get out the real world. They're like, "Hmm, "What Mm -hmm. what are we
0: doing?" Oh yeah, no. Nathan Hall shared a really good research project where he had done basically what we're talking about in Area A with a group of dogs. There was always a find there, and then Area B never a find with group two of dogs they had intermittent find schedules in area A, and then also in area B, there was never a find. When they finally introduced a hide into area A, sorry, into area B, dogs in group one that had always a find ratio but never found in in area B didn't even acknowledge odor in area B because like you said, they had become attuned to that. Now the dogs who in training uh, in group two that went to area A and had an intermittent find schedule, when there was odor introduced into area B, they got it. Because they had understood there was potential, and they didn't go through like you, what we talked about a minute ago. That response of, you know, you, you know, what do we do when the men, we put our money in the vending machine and nothing happens? Well, we, some people get more emotional than other ones. Shake the machine, do whatever. Come on, it's supposed to pay, just like a dog does that odor when all of a sudden you don't you're not paying anymore, or when there's you know, when they learn there's nothing it's ever going to pay in this environment. Like you said, they're real world conditions that they, for here is the casino environment. The casino dogs never get to find anything on the casino floors, if ever.
1: Yeah. But the, but your entire state's economy is driven by rats <laughs> willing to press more, cal, ex, expend more calories, pressing the bar than they get from the hopper.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. and, and, and,
1: and that show and those slot machines Mm -hmm. their original algorithms were designed by bf skinner's grad students
0: yeah and they were
1: built they were built around behavioral principles
0: and you would figure we would allow the dogs that work in these environments to have a be trained in a very similar way but no you know it's oh we can't have any we don't want to shoot i mean what's really sad is a significant number of the casinos do not even have explosive training aids to train on. So they have to try to get with a group, you know, every so often when right. they happen to get pulled out. And it's always in the same type of environments. It's these areas that they can train in. But in their in their real operation environments, there's no train there's nothing ever found. So, like you just say, the dogs just walk around. And of course, we all know it's just to give the people that are or the guests there, oh look, there's a dog, we're safe. You know?
1: Oh, and, and let me tell you, because when you do it just for show and then the dog actually does find something,
0: they don't want to believe it.
1: Th- th- nobody nobody there knows what to do nope. about it. They, they, they're I like, I had that uh-uh. actually happen right after 9 11 when I was checking stores going on cruise ships. Mm-hmm. And dogs indicated on a box. The box was from Hamburg. It wasn't on the manifest. Mm. It had been opened and reclosed with brown packing tape. And my first dog hit it. And I said, well, let me get the second dog. And I bring the second dog in from the upwind side this time. Mm -hmm. As soon as he gets downwind of it, bang, he butt hooks, goes right back into it. They come out, they hand wand it. It's it's good. And they didn't know what to do. I told security and security apparently came out. And then they had the longshoreman, hey, take your forklift and pick that one up and go take it all the way down at the (laughs) other end of the dock by the bow of the ship. (laughs) Meanwhile, when they're trying to figure out what's going on with that thing, they leave it there. My dog hits on another box. Same brown packing tape hmm. from Hamburg, not on the manifest, just like the other one wasn't on the manifest. And second dog hits on it, hand wanted, it's hot too. They picked that one up and they put it with the other one. And about that time, the foreman asked the forklift guy, what are you doing? The forklift guy says, well, dog's kind of sat at that one and they told me to move it. That forklift foreman longshore foreman says we're done and it, yeah. the, everything on the dock stops yeah and then port of seattle rolls up with the with their bomb truck they tape off that dock which is right next to the edgewater inn where everybody's having a lovely Sunday yeah. morning fishing from their dock and or <laughs> from their, the deck outside their room and then as soon as they see the yellow the bomb truck roll up and the yellow caution tape on those two pallets that the decks at the Edgewater empty. There's nobody there. <laughs> Turns out after they blew those things up into the water and the frogmen retrieved them, they were just computer parts Oh, and they were from the, um, from another ship it was a ship to ship transfer. That's okay. why it wasn't on the, uh. on the manifest. Hamburg was where the other ship was, was, um, uh, docked at the time they put it on air cargo to ship it over. And then it got trucked over from Miami and the reason that the dog hit on it was the brown packing tape okay. had been stored in the other ship's pyrotechnics locker.
0: Ah, yep. There you so go.
1: It it absorbed all sorts of. Odor, oh yeah, and that's why the hot, hot, you know, the hand wand hit it as well as yeah. the dogs and so its odor was there just wasn't a, no substance an explosive yeah
0: device. and so many people get wrapped up on that uh, especially in the professional world you know i'm only going to reward my dog when there's substance there but your dog's trained on the odor well you and know, they ha- i actually have a question that came into me this weekend someone was like you know what should i do if my dog you know uh, what's the procedures i do if uh, my dog goes back to an area where i had a hide previously let's say within 24 hours like he gave different timelines I haven't answered it yet. I actually might save it for the Q&A. But it's because they're going with the mentality of I only find substance, not the odor. And the dog's trained on the odor of. So if odor is present, the dog – because his thing was like, what should I do if my dog alerts? you know, should I reward the dog? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, like, as we both know, there's a couple other little things that are significant in play potentially. But with that said, the dog, you have to go into, it, your dog is trained on the odor of something. And if in this case, let's say it was real world, this handler got an alert, what would he do? You know, you'd be, the dog wouldn't be wrong. Just like in your case, the odor was present. The substance wasn't, you know, and people, we can go down other wormholes too. People don't know the difference between lingering, residual, and trace. Each one is a different scale of what's available and how much of it's available. And dogs can pick up all three of those things. They all take time in different scales, depending on that, like I said, the amounts, because each one is a slightly larger amount, uh, how long it could be there, along with whatever the substance is. That's another factor. You know, explosive world and essential oils and other things can be very sticky type chemicals. Same with narcotics. But then... You know, we want these absolutes. And I think that's sometimes where we run into issues is the handler's like, well, it has to be this or it has to be that, not understanding there's a lot of little things that are occurring that you can't see or don't know, but the dog has this ability that we don't have, and we don't know how to manage that.
1: Um, And this is a, a dilemma that, you know, Especially explosive detection trainers and narcotics yeah. detection trainers, because the consequences of getting it wrong are so so high. Mm-hmm. Then there, and um, this is why you get narcotics trainers and explosive detection trainers biasing their errors yes. in different directions
0: all all the time.
1: Because, like for example, if I'm a narcotics dog handler, the worst thing I can do is have my dog give a false response, because now I'm putting somebody's civil liberties mm-hmm. at risk. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I may take away their freedom while we go ahead and deal with this or take away their car, their money, you you name it. Yeah. Whereas for explosives, you bias your dog. T- you'd rather have a false than a miss, because mm-hmm. if you have a miss, really, really bad things can happen. Yeah. If you have a false, well, there's inconvenience associated with it, but at least nobody's getting blown up. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that's why there's allowances in a lot of certifications for a dog to give you, um, a non-productive response or a false as it's called those, yeah. those responses that, uh, aren't there, you know, people say, well, they should be right the whole time. Look, I'm only human. Yeah, My dog ain't even that. Yes. So we've we got to realize this is not a perfect machine and it's still, it's better than anything else out there. Of course. You know, back in what I think it was 98 or 99, um, I did a DARPA symposium with a bunch ah. of scientists working to create an artificial mind dog because it was close enough after Desert Storm, they realized a gas environment is, is a place where a dog can't work, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it's truly, it's not just an irritant gas, but it's one that is likely to kill any mammal. That's like, mm, can't have that. Yeah. Um, also, they needed something, didn't get tired, and they want to create a robotic, Dog. And so I'm in this symposium with a bunch of scientists, and I, I I wasn't supposed to be there. They they got all together. Then at the last minute, they said, "Well, you know, the gold standard's a dog,"
2: mm-hmm. and they didn't
1: have a dog guy. So Paul Wagoner threw my name into the mix, Like I get to go <laughs> to this thing. So I go to this thing, and they, the stuff they showed me was amazing. Yeah, like wow. But they were so far away. Yeah. And then when I showed them what, what my dog did, old 1996 video of very simple detection exercises, they went. <laughs> oh crap. We're not even close. This, this may be 10 years out. That was in 1990. It may take us 10 years to get where that dog is. That was in, you know, that was yeah. like, let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's call that ninety ninety nine. 99. Yeah. They didn't get close to it in, in no. 2009. They didn't get close to it in 2019 and they're still not close
0: to it. Nope. Nope. The closest thing that, and I had a, a podcast with somebody that does medical detection or has the medical detection dogs. Like she said, certain like diabetic alert dogs they'll probably be out of a job within five years because of the wearables and things like that. But there's still aspects of things that the dogs can detect that the machines can't. So that's one of the closest ones I've I've seen. And I kind of can agree with that. Like a wearable technology can pick up things, but dogs can still be better. But what will happen to the industry is because of the technology aspect of it, in that particular type of discipline, you'll probably see a drop off. But the act of like searching, you know, unknown targets, not knowing where it's at, trying to follow an, an odor movement. Yeah, machines are going to be are still a ways behind. I know Dr. Michelle Mon and Dr. Lauren DeGrieve and other ones that are even more tapped into those worlds. Uh, easily say, not in our lifetime. That'll mm-hmm. be as that as as agile, reprogrammable, and as uh, it cost effective as a dog. Right. So
1: 100% agree
0: the uh, last
1: we we got job security if if people will listen.
0: Yes, for sure. (laughs) Last question here before and I let you go. Um, I wanted to ask about, you know, how do you convey the message about recognizing that um, empty reps in detection? You know, and this is something that depending on groups, but I I, I see it frequently happen on both sides. Um, So you're point of view and take on recognizing and knowing when you've kind of reached those empty rep stages in your, in your training?
1: Well, this dovetails with your previous question Mm -hmm. about what do you do when a dog gives you a false? Yep. And so first off, in that context, I hopefully have a hierarchy of reinforcers I can use. And that when my dog gives me a false, I will give them a low value value reinforcer which is probably going to be a verbal mm-hmm. okay buddy nice job let's go yep. and we'll move on and reset hoping and i'll mark i'll leave a i'll, I'll drop a marker mm-hmm. at that point so i can come back to it later and see what mm-hmm. see what's there give that another shot yeah you know that may be something that, that i want to do but i'm going to remember this or i'm going to run other dogs by it
2: mm-hmm.
1: so we can see if we get if if multiple dogs hit this there may be something there to consider Mm -hmm. so that's and it may be that it's fringe working from somewhere else or it may be that there is something there that we didn't know about that this wasn't properly cleared before we put the dogs into it so that's a piece of this but i'm going to now you're a detection guy i'm going to give you a tracking story on this okay and that is we know that for example the best tracking dogs in this country the best of them on real world deployments you're lucky if you get 30 percent success rate in terms of finding a bad guy or finding an evidence article at which the dog can be paid. Yeah. That's roughly where it's at. Some dogs get really, you know, we've had dogs that get as approach 50%, but it's really tough to get there. And nationally for years, you're going to see a lot of dogs. It's down at like in the, in the, in the single digits in terms of success rate. Sure. But they're valuable enough that they keep them in there and they keep the dogs working at it. So you have to make dogs resistant to extinction. The only way you can make dogs resistant to extinction is to expose them. This and you made the allusion before to the, co- the 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 coke machine versus yep. the slot machine. And so we have to start them. We get them started by teaching them. Hey, human beings are pest dispensers, and everything <laughs> we do with you is a coke machine. Yep. Great. Oh, by the way, every once in a while, this coke machine is, is it's been hybridized. It's the you know it's the the bastard stepchild of a slot machine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that cook machine doesn't pay as well. Yeah. And sometimes it's like really stingy and then you know, then it's kind of Uber stingy and then wow, you, it almost never pays. But that one time that it does, yeah, it pays big and it's worth it. And so the only way you can do this is to aggregate your reinforcement so that it has enough value to sustain the dry holes. Mm-hmm. And this is especially the case for explosive detection dogs. Um, but, um, and so for our tracking dogs, we actually, we get two wins out of, uh, a procedure we call gap tracks. Okay. We'll, we'll run a track and then, um, we'll make a turn around a corner, but what we'll do is, uh, let's say two thirds of the way down the block, we'll pick the track layer up in a car. So they'll just step off the, the planning strip or the, or the curb jump into a car, we'll drive them around the corner and drop them a third of the way down and then let them continue the track to wherever it ends, whether it's an article or a person. Making sure that that final leg is not into the wind so that the dog can't just wind send it. Yep. And then we use that point for two things. One, to teach handlers how to read their dogs when it's a clear negative. When that dog is truly not a scent. It's not there anymore. So ideally, when we set set these tracks up, we're sending that first leg into the wind. So all the scent is blowing back away. So there's not much distributed past the point where we pick the dog up. You get really clear negatives then. Mm-hmm. So the handlers learn to read their negatives. They know when we're teaching this. This is the spot. Watch your dog when he gets there. When he gets there, you don't say anything to him. Let the dog continue to work, and you just amble around to the intersection and. When you get to the corner, you don't make that right turn right away. You let the dog cast that corner a little bit and then amble in the direction of where it is. You know where it picks up again. Just watch your dog. And if your dog shows you a change of behavior there, you just throw out a quiet, what you got? Mm -hmm. And step in the direction that you know the trap goes and let the dog finish it up. They, They pick it up and pretty soon they pick it up and they don't need to hear you say anything. They're picking it back up is enough reinforcement for them that they are ready to go. So you're reinforcing the hunting for the track because tracking is a, is a similar to a search chain, which is search, locate and report. This one is search, follow and report. And if you have a gap in it, it's search, follow, search again for a location where the track is follow that and Mm -hmm. then go from there. So we teach them to withstand those gaps just as you have to teach a detection dog to withstand dry searches, dry rooms, dry vehicle lots, an entire lot with nothing in it, because that's going to happen in the real world. You're going to get there. You're going to have that, that thing to check. Um, uh, and you may have a a series of these things that are going to be dry. And the only way you can, can teach the dog to do that is once you're solid getting into the dog will clear a room and, get it in, find anything that's in there. You're really solid with that. Then you have a dry hole room that's right close to the next one so that you can almost move to the second room without there being a skip, mm-hmm. you know, without mm-hmm. without skipping a beat. They yeah. just move in there with no interruption in the flow and s- close into that room, you know, down the first leg, first room, first wall, you'll have an article. So now they understand, ooh, just because I didn't find it in that room doesn't mean it's right there. Cause you move to it quickly. Once they're doing that pretty reliably, you move it deeper into the room. Yep. And then you move into another room across the hall. So schools are good for these office buildings that yeah. have hallways with cross rooms across from each other work well for this. Um, and one of the things that we'll also do is we'll start putting more time in between the two rooms. So once we get the dog tolerating smooth flow between three rooms, we go back to two rooms but we we do a counter, a little bit of a, a stop in between the two rooms where we have a conversation. Hey, we got this. What's going on? Blah blah blah. We simulate what we're going to see in the operating environment. The dogs seeing that you know the, the the hairless primates are chattering to each other in the trees, <laughs> and then back back to, back on task again. Um, so we try to simulate what they're going to see in the real world for it, and it goes from there.
0: And this um, is where that data and record keeping comes in really handy. You can see your progress and what's been working, what, where the struggles are at.
1: So the, my rule is when I talk to handlers about, you know, their records, like if we're going to lay a track, I need to know the information of what's the distance you're working, what's the delay, what's your reinforcer spacing. You know, if it's treats that are dropped on the ground, it's how they're faced, or if it's articles, how far apart are your articles on average, knowing that it, it's a range. So I need to know the I know need to know the average and the range mm-hmm. on that, um, and if there's spray because we use a hydration method for teaching tracking, mm-hmm. you know what's the spray width? What's its and its an evaporation rate? How far? Mm-hmm. How much of it is evaporated? How much is still visible? And and we get rid of the visible stuff pretty on so really then I just need to know width, mm-hmm. um, and I need to know what your last success rate was at that that one, and we have a scale for how we rate success. Um, 80% or above, you get to make an adjustment of one criteria. Um, and the, there are four criteria we look at for determining success. So we've got that all, all all, there. The only rule I tell the handlers is if I ask you what you want me to set, set up for you or where you were at on your last one, you're not allowed to use an adjective. <laughs> no good, no abouts, mm-hmm. no sortas. Mm-hmm. Um I around think, yeah nothing like that i want to know how many yards how many meters how many inches how many minutes how many seconds give me numbers mm-hmm. and your number and by the way your tracking progress cards should have numbers on them yes your dog luck should have numbers on them <clears throat> how deep was that hide you yep. in inches or feet or whatever your your measure so good. is uh, meters the whole point is you know how deep was it How high was it? Um, You know, how long was it placed there? What is its actual weight? You know, or if it's, you know, an explosive that works by length, you know, how many feet or how many meters, whatever, whatever measure, but numbers, give me fricking numbers. Yes. Because (laughs) as soon as you have, as soon as you start throwing adjectives into it, we got wiggle room. Yeah. And when that wiggle room happens... You start having an accumulation of tolerances and when you get too many tolerances and there, things get too loose things collapse
0: mm-hmm. yep it, it's it, and i you, you when you were talking there you made me think of something else so i end up having adding one more question to this <clears throat> dealing with you know the, the obviously the sport world deals with this all the time because it's, it's a must thing they deal with but in the professional side we create it which is running dog after dog on the same search area. And what's your take on the dogs using the other dog scent there to solve their problem? And of course, what the dogs go through during reinforcement and what's left behind as far as that scent picture uh, from the dogs. I know what I do, you know, on the professional side of things, but I want to, you know, let the audience hear your point of view on dealing with running dog over dog on the same search area.
1: Well, one organization I certify with, you know, that I do certification for requires that we have multiple dogs working exactly the same search Mm -hmm. because human beings, when we test, we Mm -hmm. want it to be fair. And for us, fair means everybody does the same thing. Yep. And the aspect of fairness in this that they're not considering is the fact that dogs, remember, my wife said I'm supposed to say they're opportunists, but they are instead... (laughs)
0: Cheating bastards.
1: <laughs> yes, that's well. That's what Kenny looked like yeah, exactly. Say, but, I, but but I say they're cheating mamajamas. Yeah, because because I've been told that profanity is the tool of the ignorant, the mind incapable <laughs> of expressing <laughs> itself in other fashion. And don't you fucking forget that. Yeah, exactly. So so, so what I'm saying is is that if dogs are going to do that, then you should train for them by having them do that in their training. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have them follow multiple dogs, then you set it up and mm-hmm. you set your exercises up in such a way that there's a rotation that everybody rotates through to a different point in the cycle of dogs going through a place mm-hmm. so that it, it's fair. Everybody gets to be first. Everybody gets to be last. Yep. Everybody gets to be next, last, and then everybody gets to be second, third, whatever it is. But the other thing that, to remember with this is when you train this, also train the dogs that just because a dog's been here and hit this spot doesn't mean that's it. Anymore. Correct. That, you know, you can you can set this up, have multiple dogs do something, but you can take an aid and you can move it. There will be residual there, and that's where your low-value reinforcer is going to come up, but now in a fresh spot that another dog has, hasn't hit yet, you put something there. The point is, is that you have got to try and stay ahead of the dog's effort to find the easiest way to solve the problem. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to expose them to, if they're, you're not going to be able to avoid it in the operating environment, whether it's a trial or a certification or whatever, then you better replicate it in training.
0: Yeah. And that's
1: better give them a a chance and realize that you're running the risk of turning these things into a slot machine exercise and that. Well, I'll just keep pulling the handle on this thing where other dogs have been until I get it right. So,
0: it's, well, and I mean that. So obviously, when I've judged uh, the different sport organizations and in, in the because of this, they have to. They don't ever know where they're going to land in this like, sequence of dogs. The as soon as you see a dog do, let's call it a false, obviously gives that indication to a location that's nothing there or it's a distractor. Then all of a sudden, the increase of dogs doing that at the same location after that increases. Like the next dog or the next few dogs are all really interested. Now, what's really cool, though, is many of the dogs actually won't give whatever their trained indication behavior is or, you know, obviously the sport world is- They'll have a change of behavior. Yeah, I was gonna say that would change of behavior, but some of the handlers read that as the alert because in the sport world, the alert isn't as- Uh, prominent. But in any case, but the handler who's already nervous because they're in a competition sees that change. And then the dog gets brought back to it twice or three times. The dog's like, okay, well, here's this. And, And that was one of the things I had said, you know, I try to help with is they don't train that quite enough. And they don't recognize that those things are there because they get so tunnel vision on, oh, my dog did something different. And it wasn't, you know, any kind of alert behavior. It was just, Inquisitive, like, oh, what's this right here? Especially if a dog paws at something. If one of the dogs previously paused at one of the containers, boy, the dogs after that are like, I'm sniffing all over this because I can smell dog feet and, you know, whatever scratch uh, of scent was left behind. And now the handler overreads that and it turns into that problem. But that has, you have to train, like, just like you said, you have to train for this and go through this experience. And the most important part as the handler is knowing. What your dog's alert behaviors are and I, I i love the fact that you have it broken down into the we say seven or eight points of uh, the behavior that they're looking for on alert so
1: so here's an experiment mm-hmm. so when the dog hits that spot and when the dog paws at that thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: if possible move that so the question is is the question you always have to ask is was there something there for the dog to show interest in and generate that change of behavior? If so, if I move that physical object there, let's say they pawed at a box
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that's on a pallet. If I move that box that now has the paw print on it to another place and I let that exercise, I let that, that, uh, configuration sit for a while. Mm -hmm. If the dog is hitting on fringe scent that is blowing to that spot, Mm -hmm. the dog should still hit where that box was moved from. Mm -hmm. Correct. It becomes the place that where that stuff is still blowing to. Yep. If the scent conditions haven't changed, if Mm -hmm. the, if if your little, if your micrometeorology in your search environment hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And if I put that box that is now that has been pawed on by another dog someplace else, And the dogs hit it, it becomes more likely the dog is hitting on it because of the other dogs. Correct. And you can now let the dog know that that's not going to pay. And that's like search ends. We're done. Yeah. So one of the things I don't make a big deal about it, but if my dog does something that I know is absolutely. Antithetical to the work that we want to do. We just search ends. We walk off. I don't make any big deal about it. Nothing. You know. But well, we're done. We're, We're done with that. That is a game ender. Yeah. If the dog's trying to game, because if they're trying to fake you into paying them, the last thing that they want is for that to end the game. Mm-hmm. So I just, I end the game, we stop, we come back, we re-step, we regroup, come back in and, yep. and rent, rinse and repeat and try it again. There's nothing but wrong with that. I don't make a big deal about it yeah. other than, oh, we're done. Walk off.
0: Yep. And, and, and that's what happens. People get like, oh, I have to, I have to do this now. I have, to, I have to work through it. I have to, you know, first is just going, you know what? We're, we're done with the session. know
1: yeah and and, you know it's like because i'm i'm tracking centric you know i do more tracking work than i do detection work in general although since i've retired that's kind of it's now about 50 50 between the two of them Mm -hmm. um but in tracking just because i lay this exquisite 800 yard track that really is like oh it's a thing of beauty and I put a lot of time into designing it. No place in my articles to reinforce the behaviors I want. Everything's great. Doesn't mean I have to finish it. Yeah. If in the process that dog checks out and I have a, especially if I have a decoy at the end where the dog's going to have a great, you know, great tug of war at the end. Then the last thing I'm going to do is walk that dog to the end. If he's not truly working his way to the end. Yeah and yep. their trainers all know oh, no they've got to be successful mm, no. not if the behavior's not nope. productive
0: totally but easy. also
1: if like i'm really struggling i set this track up but this dog is really struggling with asphalt to cement transitions and he nails one and gets paid for it with an object that's on that on that th- that cement then you know what i'm going to end it there we're going to have a party with that one and walk away and all the rest of that stuff if that was in the first 100 yards i'll write off the other 700 yards of this because i got a piece that i want yeah and then later on we can work on behavioral stamina and working 800 yards and doing other things but if i clean up a thing i've been really working on trying to get these asphalt to cement transitions smooth and fluid and where the dog is really casting them nicely oh yeah I'll, i'll i'll pay that big and walk away why t- why risk the chance of poisoning that experience uh-huh. with something else later on? Now, does that mean I don't have faith in my dog? While they're in the developmental stages, I'm a realist about what my dogs. You should know your limitations. This is a dirty hairy moment. Sure. You know, a good trainer should know his or her limitations. A good trainer should know his or her dog's limitations.
0: Absolutely. And then
1: constantly work at pushing them out. And that doesn't mean doing everything all at once, but pushing out a little bit here, pushing out a little bit there, then over here, then back there, and we get it good.
0: So that means based on what you said, if you actually have a all clear or blank search, you must be one of the types that has some type of reinforcing event or reward event uh, when the dog correctly tells you nothing's there. And that's
1: that's my, you know, in my hierarchy of reinforcers, uh-huh. that's where my verbal petting and praise and moving on are. Yeah. Not, like you're not story. just that's putting the
0: dog great. up in the car because dogs shouldn't get rewarded if they don't find anything. <laughs>
1: So, you know, I, I I learned about this from one of our handlers. So I trained this guy and then he taught me. Okay. And that's that's a beautiful thing. Sure.
0: Absolutely. You know what? When
1: the when when the teacher gets taught by the student that where the student does something better than the teacher did, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh I love that. Mm-hmm. And um Kenton Carpenter with his dog Donner was like he was the dog that if a cop got shot on our department, they said That's the team I want showing up. Mm -hmm. Yes, the guy is kind of crusty and and rough around the edges, and that dog is a little owly, but you know what? If I get shot, they're going to find him. If there's any team that can find him, they're the ones. That was it. And Kenton built a, a really productive police dog out of Donner. And... If Donner didn't come up with somebody at the end of an operational track or a training track, if it Mm -hmm. was a training track that was a dry hole that we set up Mm -hmm. and we'd set up dry hole training tracks, Mm -hmm. then at the end of it, Kent would take the dog's tracking harness off. That means you're no longer obligated to nose down work Mm -hmm. because our harness is the equipment cue says if it's on nose down work, if it's off, you can you you're free to do what other stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he'd give him the harness to carry back as a tug toy. <laughs> he'd hold on to the big D ring on it yep. and they'd have a little tug and the dog would take it. He'd shake it. And we used to have these really bright strobes on our harnesses mm-hmm. the at the time. Oh, very expensive ones from fishery supply that had these special batteries that had to screw in the brass <laughs> base and giant black gaskets and uh-huh. goop. And they were expensive. That dog went through two or three of those a year because <laughs> he
0: Shake it, break it, break it yeah. as he
1: was shaking his harness. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was worth it because that 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 dog knew I did a good job. Even yeah. if I didn't come up with him, I, Dad's yeah. happy. This worked out. I got I got this thing, and that still that reinforcer was nowhere near as exciting. Of oh, course, dog as getting to the end and finding a real suspect or sure. finding a decoy, and, and that dog loved it.
0: Yeah, I share the same thing for detection. You know, there there, there needs to be inside using your hierarchy of reward system. You know, the dog, ha- you don't want to just put the dog up as a frequent option, which happens a lot. You want to reinforce, they did it right. They searched their area. They told you nothing was there. They did a good job, especially if they worked their little tails off. That yep. is deserving of reinforcement of some level. If you don't, again, if back to our earlier conversation of, hey, this is this, this is that, and this is what's going to happen. And then you start seeing extinguishing behaviors start to develop based on certain cues or certain things that happen. Um No, I I love that we can share that with everybody that, you know, because that's a question that comes up, I'm sure you get a lot too, is like, what do I do when it's a blank and things like that? How do I handle it? So I'm glad we got to kind of share that with the listeners there. Now, of course, how do people find you? How do they get a hold of you?
1: The easiest way is go to uh, proactivecanine.com. That's P-R-O-A-C-T-I-V-E, letter K, number nine, dot com. And there's a link that you can click there to send a me, email to me, or you mm-hmm. can just send it to Steve at proactive or info at proactive I check both of those. Um, and I've got a coming event here pretty soon. Okay. Um, I'd like to, I'd yes like to please. Quote, I got a, an urban tracking seminar actually in, in kind of in my backyard in okay. Northwestern Washington, uh, sponsored by the Chuck and the dog training association on October 8th and 9th. Perfect. We've got a few working slots available and there are uh, Ample auditor slots if people want to come and watch uh, our approach to building really effective real world urban and harsh environment tracking dogs. Nice. Um, it's two days, uh, October 8th and 9th. And you can get a hold of the uh, seminar ho- host, uh, Lori Daniels, who's running things for the Chuck and the Dog Training Association at Daniels at comcast.net. at, at comcast.net. And um, if you want, I can throw a link up in the comment section at once this is posted. Sure.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I obviously, if you're game for it, I would love to do this some more, you know, do another one of these later on. We'll, we'll I'm sure we'll get questions and comments from this one. And uh, if that's something you're up for.
1: Shoot, man. Wake me from a sound sleep. Give me a cup of coffee, and we can talk about we can talk about dogs anytime.
0: No awesome, perfect. And I, I'm always thankful for your contributions that you do. You know, I was joking around. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, Kevin Sheldahl, a little while ago.
1: Oh, and, Kevin, I just I just did a seminar for him not too long ago, back up in Appleton.
0: Nice. Yeah. So we were we were talking about obviously, you know. You know the day and age of social media and things like that, and how for me I've had to embrace that, and it's harder for like you said. You know, once you're at his age and older, it's not something that's you know you're not, you're not programmed for it. Where, well as a business as you know we kind of have to you know and as the audience keeps getting younger uh you really got to do a lot of things i used to hate doing videos and all this kind of stuff and now i really have to embrace it and do it like i love it and all that kind of stuff and parts of it i do and parts of it i I don't but i'm always thankful for guys like you and him and others who get on there and uh you know share your knowledge and your information when you see certain posts that uh get your attention or, or uh you know you want to give some good feedback on so i'm always thankful when i see your name hop on there and you and you say something
1: well you know i will say that um you have definitely demonstrated your 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 passion for scent work out there it's it's, <laughs> it, it's clear to anybody to see that um you you love this stuff you geek out on it yeah. and um you know it's good to be willing to talk to people who maybe see things differently. Like we've had a pretty agreeable conversation. Sure. But I hope that maybe the next time we come up there, we go, we have a moment where we go, wait a minute. I don't quite see it like that. Sure. Way. Because I want to see. I think your response is what it, what it should be. And that is, as soon as I see somebody that doesn't agree with me, mm-hmm. my first response should be curiosity. Yes. All right this must have worked for him how did Why? how did he come what to this place it? where he believes this yeah. and i believe this other thing yeah and then how and then if if two people's minds are in the right place they're going to look for the commonality of principles for that sure say that make both these things work that seem like they wouldn't yes and um so i hope that we have another conversation and i hope it's one where we can challenge each other yeah and we can say wait 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 what wait a minute how does that work or what about the unintended consequence yeah i'm doing a tracking program now for you know a state agency in the desert southwest mm. uh they're trying to track where people say you can't track sure and um i got a couple guys there that that are the ones who are always asking questions they're always but but what about this uh-huh. I mean, isn't there a risk <laughs> of that i mean yes there is yeah and this is about trade-off what trade-off do oh, you i was want?
0: just gonna say trade-offs yeah so so no, for sure. I mean, I cause forward I, to another conversation. Yeah, I have, because I, I do. I, and it will make it a little bit more tracking-centric, because there's definitely questions I have on that. I'm not as versed, but I, I, mean, I did it for quite some years. I had a bloodhound well, for a little yeah. while. And,
1: Lackland doesn't, doesn't teach it much. No. You know, they, but, they, they, you know, Lackland, I can remember, I don't know what dog school was like when you went through, but I went through patrol dog school. There was one day where they yeah. brought the dogs out for half of a morning, yeah. and they gave everybody a tracking harness and said, try this. Some dogs do it. Some dogs don't. Okay, we're done. Yeah.
0: Moving on. No, we <laughs> didn't do hardly stage. any. For me, it, it started actually before I went in the military because of the Schutzen background and things like that, and doing the footstep tracking. And then later on, years later, when I was back in Florida as a cop, um, you know, going through police dog schools and you know running tracks with my the handlers I worked with. Um, we had different beliefs at first, and then one of my handlers challenged me on something and the guys, I, one of the guys, I won't say one of my handlers, cause I worked with him or he was my supervisor, um, challenged me really strongly on something I had believed in and then demonstrated why it worked the way he was thinking. And that was one of those aha moments and took me out of my comfort zone and made me kind of look at something different. So tracking has always been something though I haven't done tons of it. And I don't do hardly any of it these days, just a lot of it because of what I do now. And also obviously where I'm at is not in his environments.
1: From a business standpoint, it's really expensive. Sure. Because the time involved in setting it up and making the progressions, you know, one tracking exercise, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: it can take you. An hour and a half just to set up and run one dog through it yeah and you're not going to run another one through it you got to go set up another one yes and um so if you're working with a group it gets tough oh yeah so from from but when we were faced legal challenges in the 90s in Mm -hmm. in seattle the, the when every canine unit around the country was getting sued and it was there were big class actions in california seattle had its its fair you know it had its turn in the arena with a class action suit they we won handily. we're the only agency to actually take it all over through court and win Mm -hmm. um but i was the unit statistician i was the one that built our (laughs) first data-driven dog log system on a flat file on an old program called microsoft works
0: (laughs) i remember that holy (laughs) cow
1: yeah Wow. And I did, I created, I put our records on that. But the one thing I can tell you from that data, I can tell you that our city, 87% of our work was tracking. Mm-hmm. Building search, area search, handler protection, dir- um, direct pursuit or you know, directed apprehension and um, um, discrete evidence search amounted to 13% of our workload. Wow. And, but... There's nothing you can I can't tell you, dude. I can't tell you how satisfying it is to have your dog start at the local stop and rob, Uh track five, six, seven blocks through the city Mm -hmm. into somebody's backyard. It's worth it just for the look on that guy's face when the dog (laughs) rounds the corner and finds him hiding under the deck. Yeah. And you challenge him and tell him, Come on out, give up. Yeah. You've got, I mean, it's just there's there's something because that one would have gotten away. No chance. He or she would have been caught. Canine tracking gets the ones that would have got away yeah at better than any other deployment model. And um it makes sense. And there are a lot of agencies that aren't doing it mm-hmm. that that could it could yep. be done if you had the will to put the time and energy yes. into training it. It's got to be a training centric philosophy that sure. once you get it. Um it's an irreplaceable tool. Oh, it's yeah. literally the only in the police inventory that will drag you to a confrontation with a resisting suspect. Yeah. Who's already resisted by flight.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I know I've been on many of them and seen it and seen some amazing things myself. And, you know, uh, had great conversations with Doc, late Doc McKenzie back in the day about, you know, why certain things happened a certain way, why certain models lived on based on agencies' activity levels, you know. Things that were, that thought were worked because of training was, was it really because they had a very active agency and the dogs had abilities to kind of learn on their own (laughs) without being so directed by. So, so perfect. We're going to leave this as a teaser. Then the next one we'll do will be a little bit of detection, but a lot more about tracking. And because I have lots of, like I said, there's things like even about the, the water, the spraying, the, the misting aspect. There's things that I have questions about on that. I've, I've gone through and learned some of the Dutch hard surface tracking. Thanks to Simon Prins, the, one of my good friends, um, and some other ones. So there's it'll be a great conversation we can have uh, uh, for all those, especially those that love tracking and tune in for that one. And those that don't, you'll get to hear some really cool stuff that does apply. There's lots of lessons that overlap and apply to detection for sure
1: cool well i look forward to it i really look forward to it. same
0: here well thank you again for coming on here and for everybody listening thank you for tuning in to canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy